So, we mentioned on our previous podcast, the Gramophone Awards uh, review podcast, that uh, Gil Rose of uh, the Boston Modern Orchestra Project won the uh, Special Achievement Award for Gramophone this year. And I was checking the lists at um, Presto Music in England, and they've... um, They've chosen um, among their kind of like a new release roundup uh, recordings was the new uh, volume three of the Renitsky series, who we talked to um, Daniel and um, Marek about. You know what I think? I think Gil Rose and the Renitsky series got the adult music bump. You know, mm. so they're winning these awards and things. That's you know, we had a we kind of. Gave them a little push there, and uh, I think people are listening to us. I think they're noticing. It could be. Yeah. I'd like to think we had a little influence in there. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think so. I, I think I'm going to suggest that we did, just because uh, I can. At the very <laughs> at the very least. Uh, because I we have the platform the, to do so. Yeah, we were on the cutting edge of what was going to be, you know, picked out among the... Uh, the hordes of releases. So if anyone, you know, if you want uh, winning winning lottery numbers, uh, your fortune, come to adult music. You know. Well, I'll uh, tell you. I'll tell you what. I'm gonna give a shout out to uh, Mike Ladon. He's gonna win a jazz Grammy this year. That's my prediction. That would be great because he did the adult music uh, review. So there you go. We're, we will be three for three by the end of the year. On the cutting edge. On the cutting edge. Yeah. Of all mature music, right here. Right. On the Adult Music Podcast, hmm. where we give you music for the mature mind and also tell you about great things to come. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of great stuff this week. We have some really good stuff this, this week. Yeah. yeah, this was an enjoyable listening week all the way through, pretty much. Now I'm settled in here because, uh, well, we're back in our evening slot, and I don't think we're going to have any motorcycles or other sounds and it's dark out because it's getting dark early and it's yeah, time at my in my house we only get the motorcycle sounds at 3 a.m i don't oh, know why okay. that is i gotta live on a mountainside and uh i think people just go up the mountain at night they go camping up there and then you, you can hear like motorcycles going by yeah. really late at night i'm kind of on the ground floor so i can hear them really up close there's not too much here except for the tofu truck at 5 p.m after that it's yeah. pretty quiet yeah 5 p.m yeah, that's when he comes around with his little. That's pretty. Horn. That's not a big deal. Not no. a big deal. Not nothing to worry about. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah. So we had our midweek gramophone review award, uh, and that was we we put that as a regular episode thirty one. So this week, in, in on, which uh, everybody learned uh, which albums I didn't hear. Yeah. <laughs> well, you <laughs> but, couldn't listen to I, all of them. But I will it's be hearing many. them all eventually. So it's going to take a long time. That yeah. maybe that wasn't such a. I did want to talk about some of the records that I did hear on that uh, podcast, but it turns out there were a lot of records, and I couldn't really get through oh, them all. there's too many. So. Yeah. There are too many, yeah. So that makes this episode 32 mm. of Adult Music, the podcast wow. with music for the mature mind. And before we get rolling on this week's uh, six new albums, I want to remind everyone, that in the episode description, you're going to find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. And also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place, one click. It'll bring you to Deezer, our preferred streaming platform, where you can also follow us at username Adult Music Podcast. The 
podcast is up there too, as well as the playlist for all of our episodes. Uh, if you can't see that uh, easily or the links don't work because on some platforms they only have the text, uh, you can just uh, jump over to our host platform, Podbean, where everything's easy to see and all the links are easy to follow. Uh, also, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. And if you give us a ranking or write a review, that will help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, of which we're back in the Podbean music commentary list, short yeah. list this week. So hopefully that'll turn some more eyes. We haven't been up there for a while. And uh, when we get up there, that helps us increase the members of our audience. And we're always happy about that. Uh, also, if you'd like to contact us directly, if you have any comments or questions, uh, please don't hesitate. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, you can see that on the Podbean site, if if you're not good at spelling. That's right. Uh, <laughs> By the you way. Can click there, yeah. And if you don't know us, uh, this is Russ here, and over there. I'm Mike. Is Mike. Yeah. And we're both here in Japan. With all the CDs. At r and Drowning Studios. in CDs. I will definitely die one day reaching for a CD and the shelf will fall on me and I will be crushed to death under the weight of all the CDs I have Just make sure that you have a little note with a you know, notary I'll, I'll pin a signature. note to my lapel every time I reach for one that, that Russ gets all the... Uh, Russ gets all of those, yeah. All the CDs on my deceased. Yeah. Most on, of them know. are on my hard drive, but I'll take the physical copies too. And then uh, yeah. I'll just move okay. all my wife's stuff out and put those I in. Think, and, and, you know. I think uh, Japan, the Japanese authorities, if, if I were to give all these CDs to them, they could actually build a new airport on the surface area that they cover. That's an interesting <laughs> idea, how much surface area those would have, yeah. Hmm. I just read a piece this week that it said that CDs um, last 20 years, which is a little depressing, but I don't know. I have CDs that are That's older incorrect. more than 20 years old. That's not right. Yeah, I, have the I don't first, know why they think that. The first CD I ever bought uh, when I finally had saved up enough for uh, CD player. I think when the CD players came out in 1981. 80, was, nah, well, maybe. I had mine yeah. in 85, but yeah. they were like, yeah. They came out in 81, and of course, mm. I was uh, very young and uh, didn't have enough money. I didn't get mine until 89, and mm. uh, I remember the first disc I bought, which was, uh, a, let me see, it was a Clifford Brown CD, and I think the next mm. one was Miles Davis, and after that, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think. Anyway, those CDs still play as good as the day that they were made. I've never had a commercial CD fail. I've only had like CDR uh, ones that I burnt myself yeah. where the uh, layer peeled off. So I've had one or two commercial ones kind of not work, but uh, very <laughs> I've rare. I've had some bad ones oh, from There only been three the or four. Yeah. No, but they worked, but then like one day I put them in and they didn't play anymore. But that's uh -huh. only three or four of the thousands that I have. I mean, yeah. it's really... It's really crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. I'd hate to lose those. I, I do have digital files of a lot of them now, but not all of them by any means. Okay. Anyway. Um, oh, um, incidentally, we should mention that um, for those uh, – we're, we're big fans of the Renitsky Project now that we've talked to Daniel Bernardson and Marek Stilek on um, – that interview that we did with them. And I would like to mention that volume three of that – series on the Naxos label is out as of Friday, October 8th. So you can get that now. Um, we haven't heard it yet, actually. So maybe we'll talk about it a little bit. Hope to listen to it this week. Yeah, Next Daniel week, sent I, me the uh, scores. Yeah. They'll be up. Mm. Uh, it was fun to listen to volume two 
with mm. the scores and uh although oh, you had the scores yeah can you send me the scores i'll take a look at that this yeah week as look well. at this it's fun to follow the scores it's it would be actually yeah. much easier to do if they were on uh, paper it's not really easy to follow like a whole orchestra score on a computer screen uh, especially if you have a laptop parts, like you know? i do boy and um <laughs> but uh, it was fun uh to do that and i'll do that with the new one and this time I will also uh, refer to uh, Daniel's album notes, uh, which he reminded me of last time. Uh, Nexus online, is one huh? of the nice labels that gives you the full album notes for free on their website. Online, you know, yeah, Good for online. Them. Uh, so you can check that All out. Right. But we hope to get a listen and uh, maybe talk about that soon uh, on the podcast. Uh, uh, soon. <laughs> Unlike our least favorite <laughs> record label. Sony Classical, Sony. yeah. Who who doesn't even put out stuff on CD? No. You know, oh, the, the distribution yeah. is just oh, for them. It's just yeah. uh, they don't want you to listen to it. They don't want me to listen <laughs> to it. No, I'm gonna. Okay, you know what? We're on. We're on. We have a podcast here. We have a, a little bit of a platform. I'm gonna complain right now, okay, about something. I've been wanting to hear the Roxana Ahmed album Ontology for some time. All right, oh, yeah, it's not available. Too, yeah. It's not available on any. Um, uh, you know, physical media. It's a Sony release, okay? So it's not like she's on Bandcamp or anything like that. You know, that's another issue altogether. But no, you can't, it's not on Deezer either. It's only on selected sort of um, streaming sites. It's on Spotify, but I don't want to listen to it on Spotify because I don't have a subscription. And they play ads in between these songs, and I don't want to hear the ads. It just, it's just a nightmare. Put this out on a CD, Sony. I'll buy it. I, you know, I'm interested. You know, I'm a big uh, collector, but uh, I don't know. This, this drives me crazy. Yeah, it's getting a little funny. There's all kinds of uh, pockets yeah, another, of resistance. Another release I want to talk about is um, on the award-winning this year, the uh, label of the year, Deutsche Grammophon. Uh, they recently released a uh, an album of um, uh, Florence... It's Florence Price, right? She she has uh, two two symphonies. We We talked about her chamber music. She's an American composer from the mid twentieth uh, century, and uh, I, you know we could hear these; they're on Deezer, but uh, there's no physical medium for this. And uh, Deutsche Grammophon will sometimes is, do this as well. They did this with the uh, Dudamel Ives um, symphonies, which are now on CD. It took like months after they um, released it, and uh, that's we talked last at the, in the last episode about the John Adams. Uh, must the Devil Have All the Best Tunes with um, Yuja Wang? That was never yeah. released on a CD either. It's just, yeah. just available as um, streaming. So I'm mm. a little... I want to program this uh, Florence Price album, but I'm a little reluctant to do it just because I can't get a CD of it. I don't really want to, you know, rely on uh, the streaming to hear it. I might do that anyway because um, it's. I think it's a major release. I mean, she's kind mm. of a, a, a big new discovery and she's kind of popular now. Um it's very appealing music to listen to. Anyway, we'll yeah. get to that eventually one day, must, I'm sure. Must the record labels make listening so difficult? I know. Sure, that'd be a good it used symphony. to be easy. Yeah. Yeah, come on, one platform. You know, just you'd put it on a CD, you'd go to Tower Records, it would be there, you know. Yep. <laughs> Don't even want to go to Tower Records now. The yeah. used shop has more than they do. But Well, they yeah, well, it's we do the, the funny thing is we actually have Tower Records yeah. still. In Japan, there was like a buyer here, and they kind of kept it going with the same design—the yellow and red—and the, yep. you know. But they're all gone in America now. It's too bad. That was a golden age, back in the '90s. I remember. Back in the old days. <laughs> back in the old young. days, we had these giant record stores. It was really fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a great uh, documentary about Tower Records, by the way, um, made by Tom Hanks' son. Hmm. I, I'm pretty sure it was him. Uh, oh, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but uh, it was really good. Good interviews, people remembering the good old days of uh, Tower Records in California where it started and then its expansion across the U.S. and the world. Yeah. They overextended themselves. And anyway, now everybody listens to things online. I don't like that. I like still having the thing. Because you're an old timer. Maybe. But uh, certain things uh, you really appreciate when you get to your middle age. One of them is uh, whiskey. Yeah. And another I got a lot one of stuff. Have, I have a lot of stuff media. on CDs that you'll never find anywhere on streaming uh, that or anywhere else, as a matter of fact. Yeah. I have a lot of stuff on CD that will that aren't going to be available on streaming and that will eventually disappear from streaming too, but won't disappear from my record collection, yes. you know? I don't know. All right, anyway, speaking of the uh, label of the year, the Gramophone Awards winning label of the year, Deutsche Gramophone, we do have an excellent release from them. Well packaged, well thought out. This is um, Kit Armstrong um, on the piano. Uh, Kit, uh, William Byrd, John Bull, The Visionaries of Piano Music on the Deutsche Gramophone label and on a CD as well. I'm very happy. A double CD, in fact. It's a very long album. All right, so Kit Armstrong, American pianist, and he has uh, British and Taiwanese parents. So he's, um, I don't know how he wound up in America. But he was a child prodigy, and he's also a composer. He's one of these people who can uh, just do everything, uh, including play the piano. He's a pretty astonishing piano player he's got an amazing technique at least in this music um this particular now this particular program it's pretty interesting he's playing william bird and john bull um two of the famous um the most famous um virginal composers of their day the virginal was an early harpsichord uh that was available in england and he's playing them all on the piano so it's a it's a very unusual release but a really fascinating one as well he combines these two um Composers, he sort of juxtaposes them, and he claims in the Deutsche Grammophone booklet note that between the two of them, they started the entire trajectory of piano music up up to the present day. Um, I I think that's a bit of a that's that quite a claim. Stretch. That's a stretch. It's, but it's a it, but he even has a a chart in the uh, textbook showing who these um composers um influenced and it's uh he makes a pretty good case for it i don't know that i'm gonna agree with that but um uh anyway that's that's his um sort of take on this and he's actually putting together this whole recording project that we're hearing on this album to uh back it up so you know i'm impressed by that you know his, his entire project against my word i think he wins but um anyway well, i guess mm. you know normally we think of you know the precursor to piano as the harpsichord, uh, right. and we, that's about it. But here we've got like virginal music, um, you know, which well, is sort it's of like, like a, a harp. Uh, virginal yeah. is pretty much a harpsichord. Yeah, pretty much. It's, they're similar. But I guess if you think of the idea of a keyboard, you know, being laid in front of you with all right. these keys, um, you know, that's a different approach to playing music from all the stringed instruments uh, that you would, you know, hold and uh, fret I or say pluck too. or blow into. So, yeah. um, I mean, in that sense, going back, you know, I don't know how much earlier you can go back when there was an actual, you know, keyboard uh, type of layout like that, that, uh, you know, 
that would be a precursor, the earliest precursor in concept of the techniques and possibilities. And in the, that sense, you know, the visionaries of piano music would emer emerge from that time. I guess I can understand the idea. Yeah, well, I'll kind of explain it a little bit, as at least as he um, as he talks about it in his um, in his notes. Um, I do want to mention though, I've played a harpsichord before, and it's not the same as playing a piano. Uh, it's a no. completely different technique. Um, it, it's it's more in the wrist. You got to kind of. It's not a finger instrument. It's more of a wrist instrument. You kind of there's a lot of up and down sort of movement in order to get the keys to um, to, to to press because they're kind of they sort of. It's not like a piano where you just press the key down and the hammer kind of strikes the string. You have to put enough pressure that the uh, the plectrum kind of plucks the string inside the uh, the harpsichord, and this requires a bit of pressure. And once you do that, you can't really sustain it or anything like that. It just sort of dies away right away. So, and it, it's it it takes a bit of strength. Well, it takes strength to too much strength, more strength that's in your fingers to do. I mean, you could play it with your fingers, but you'll never get a even tone so it has to be done with kind of like the wrist I mean I'm not a harpsichordist so I don't really know I didn't really learn it all the way but I just remember it was very different than playing a piano also the, the, it has tiny tiny keys so mm. you gotta get your hands in those positions really well anyway um, but he's playing these on the piano um, and I've never heard these works played on the piano before not only that but we'll, we'll talk about this when I get to this, let me just mention the two composers, William Byrd, who I'm familiar with um, as far as his um, vocal works go. I've heard a lot of his Renaissance vocal works. Both of these uh, composers compose in the Renaissance era. They're sort of some of their music is kind of a prototype for what would come later in the Baroque era, um, and they're sort of opposite temperaments. Byrd and Bull are sort of like yin and yang to each other as far as their music goes. Um, so Bird is kind of the more picturesque composer, more concerned with form. Uh, he and he writes about experiences of life outside of himself. So he's observing, and his music is sort of like, kind of, I guess, giving impressions of that. Um, you know, the woods, dances, sounds he hears, that sort of thing. John Bull, on the other hand, is the more emotional composer, at least according to uh, Armstrong, um, and he's writing about what he's feeling. So his music comes from the inside out. That's this is this is what Armstrong says. I'm not saying this in his booklet note. Uh, the funny thing is, is their names actually match their styles. They both have animal names, bird and bull, and uh, <laughs> you could say bird's music kind of sings, whereas bull's is more kind of like heavy and emotional, kind of um, you know, temperamental, shall we say? It's kind of interesting that that hmm. happened. Um. Anyway, on this album. Armstrong uses a pretty big piano sound for the works. I mean, these would never sound like this on a virginal, which is a very quiet instrument, not to mention a harpsichord. Um, and uh, you can hear this in the opening bird pieces. There are three of them that start off the uh, recording. Um, they're all pretty short. Um, he tactfully uses the sustain pedal. This doesn't really sound like it's kind of... It's one of these recordings that where he's he understands um, the research that went into Baroque music and the style, and he's keeping that in mind, but he's not necessarily trying to reproduce that sound on the piano. He gets these uh, beautiful clear tremolo effects, and he has an astonishing technique, which I'll talk about as we get to certain pieces where they appear. 
Uh, he articulates uh, beautifully and makes sure that the vis- divisions between sections of the music are very clear. Uh, they register easily, even to people unfamiliar with this style of music. You'll notice when one section ends and the next begins. Not that he's underlining them. Um, he's subtle, but you do hear them. Um, and he respects the terraced dynamics of the Renaissance and Baroque eras. Terraced dynamics means loud and then a sudden softness. Okay, you don't get like crescendos, like a gradual um, sort of loudness or softness. Although there is one work where he does that, and I'll mention it when it comes up. Um, just these sudden loud or soft attacks, and he's able to like kind of put on the brakes like really quickly. It's, and sometimes he'll kind of draw like a a breath from you like that. It's, it's, it was really nice to uh, to hear. Um, okay, let's go on here. We have uh, B- William Byrd, um, his first set of works. He has the first seven tracks on uh, the album on CD1. Um, what stood out for me uh, on among these, the flute and the drum, which is sort of uh, picturesque. Uh, it's probably more effective on the piano than it would be on the harpsichord. Although the drumming effect in the bass is possible on the harpsichord. And he gets this nice rumble on the piano. He's definitely using the piano's resources uh, for that one. Um, the next piece, The Woods So Wild. This is track five. Um, he puts the rhythm in high relief. And I really like this kind of playing where it really sounds dancey as opposed to somebody reading through a score. Um, he, he's he's he, Remember, he's a composer. And composers, I've noticed, I've heard Benjamin Britten's playing and, and Thomas Addis. Whenever they play, they really put the rhythm across very well. They kind of understand the rhythmic wellspring that music comes from. They seem to have like a real connection with it. And Armstrong does that as well. I really enjoyed that. Um, his... Um, his uh, playing, the rhythm, the the instrument, they, it all comes across as one big kind of gesture. Um, this music is all highly listenable. Um, you get the impression, too, that Armstrong is really enthusiastic about this project. You can hear that he enjoys playing these works. And the enthusiasm is infectious. I really enjoyed listening to this myself. Um Okay, anyway, after the first seven bird works, we get onto John Bull, a few fantasias by him. Um, Armstrong says that Bull is the more temperamental of the two. Um, so it's important to remember that we're in the Renaissance when we're listen- listening for emotion. So we're not going to get the big, uh, you know, um, dragon blast of passion that we get in romantic music, you know, that uh, like in Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet, where it's like just this full blast passion. Um, these people were a lot more kind of subtle and refined and sort of, um, you know, kind of um, demonstrative, let's say, not, you know, just full on so uh, we're not going to hear that kind of thing um, the first work we hear by Bull is the uh, is a fantasia In, um, some interesting things start happening by the middle of this it starts pretty unassumingly it gets louder there's a Siciliano rhythm in the bass Siciliano rhythm is um, on the one and three of a three rhythm like dun 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 is a Siciliano Siciliano um, and the right hand really goes crazy over that. I really enjoyed hearing this. I'm like, wow. And that's how emotion is put across, by, across in, in, I guess, this era of music, by speed, by um, um, just the uh, energy of the music. Okay, the piece starts with a dramatic flourish as well. Um, Armstrong is also really good at making sure that you hear any fleeting oddity, oddities of harmony as they peek out of the texture for a moment and then go back 
to something with a little more fitting in the piece. I really enjoy this about this era of music in general. They'll have this odd sort of chord and then it'll just go somewhere else where for a moment you, it kind of feels like the whole world's going to fall apart and then it just does it, miraculously doesn't. Um, I like that. Bach does this a, a lot as well. Actually, Scarlatti does it a lot, Domenico Scarlatti in his music. Um, Bull's harmony has a bit of an abruptness to it. I guess that's part of his quote, temperamentality. Um, there's a piece called The Fantastic Galliard. It ends pretty suddenly, as do all of the canons. All right. Um, I really enjoyed um, his piece, Le Buffon. It's a set of 15 variations. Um, it's a catchy and appealing piece, uh, very upbeat. And uh, in this particular piece, Armstrong's playing of the scales is really... I've used the word astonishing quite a few times, I know. But this is one of those... Um, you know, audible techniques that you hear this. He's got a fantastically smooth technique. His articulation is always crisp and clear, like all the notes are played at the same volume, the same level. It's really amazing. Um, um, he also uses slight crescendos in the bull pieces, probably in order to accentuate his rising emotion. He does these in the this in the Walsingham variations, of which there are 30, so he's kind of cheating a little there. The, that resource would not have been available to these composers at the time in keyboard music um the walsingham walsingham variations this is still on cd1 by bull um keep the same melodic profile all the way through so you would think they could get boring but because the melodies never really transformed as they are in certain uh um very works of variations but armstrong is fantastic at making sure we're hearing a different variation he'll vary them according to the volume level of attack and little rhythmic alterations that he hears in them he's really good at this he's really attentive to uh you know his his performance and what he's trying to put across um there's one bit in this too where he plays this really fast scale at this very low level of volume like it's very quiet and it's so smooth. It's just amazing. You hear every note as you would in this era. It's not like a you put the sustain pedal down and everything just kind of blurs together. No, it's all really clear and crisp. Um, he's attacking very gently, but he's still getting this f very full yet very soft sound. Amazing. This really needs to be heard, I think. Okay, anyway, um, on disc uh, one, um, we have like, it's almost like a John Bull sandwich. We have William Byrd. Uh, sections acting as the bread in the sandwich and it ends with bird's music and um, th th I'll mention the last piece uh, the bells um, which is played in l the lower and middle range of the piano before it moves to a melody in the upper range at about the halfway point it reminds me a bit of uh, Francois Couperin's Le Barricade Mysterieuse which is played entirely in the middle range of the harpsichord um, this kind of fascinates me people had the, uh, a thing about the middle range of the uh, harpsichord in this period. They really liked the sound it made, because I tend to hear this in a lot of pieces. At the end of the bells, there's a fade-out effect that the pianist does on his own. It's not a studio trick. It's pretty amazing. He just kind of crescendos down. Again, cheating for this era, but kind of made me wonder if the whole piece wasn't going to fade out. It didn't. It ends on an ending chord, but I was kind of surprised by that. Okay, the disc two, once we get to disc two, we start with John Bull, and then um, we alternate between the two. So he's sort of, uh, the two discs kind of proceed in different ways. Um, this particular one starts with John, two short works by John Bull. Then we get two by William Byrd, two by John Bull, two by William Byrd, 
bull, bird, and bull. Okay, so it's it alternates between them, sort of like a, a music contest. I guess you could think about it. Um, yeah, the um, they're, they're, these are a little different. We do get a set of uh, Walsingham variations by William Byrd on this, and in this one, he does sort of vary them enough that the um, you have to kind of listen for the um, the melody. But again, it's it's always pretty easy easy to uh, to hear. Um, the entire album ends with um, on a kind of resigned note by John Bull. I guess uh, we end with the uh, emotion on his uh, on the last work called Telluris Ingens Conditur, which is Latin, which I don't speak. <laughs> okay. Uh, this album, I have to say, it was a double album. I listened to it in two days. I didn't, but I, I didn't have time to listen to it all in the same day, but I would have. Um, it was very listenable. It was kind of, uh, I easily could have listened to it all at one sitting. It was really enjoyable. And I was constantly surprised by uh, the technique, the new sort of little magic tricks that Armstrong pulled out of his um, tech bag of technique um, to, to vary these works and make them constantly interesting. Um, really amazing. You know, I, was, I was really impressed by this, and I would urge you to give it a listen, just for the playing, if you don't like the music much, but what's not to like? It's um, very appealing Renaissance-era music. Yeah, I suppose like uh, there be there will inevitably be some purists who don't mm. like the idea of you know doing this with a modern piano. Yeah, and that's um, fine. There are yeah, original recordings out there. To me, I was interested in the concept, and uh, actually listening to what he does with these pieces on piano makes me want to hear them again on a virginal or harpsichord, uh, just in yeah, just you know, to compare, yeah. the original context. Uh, that mm. said, for me, I thought the program was a bit long. Um, it was long, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the music is not, especially coming from like a post-Baroque sensibility, uh, I, I don't find the compositions overly interesting, uh, although, you know, some of them are are quite good but as far as a, a complete program of all of that um however i will say that armstrong does his best uh to pull out you know the interesting points and the emotional content and contrasts uh which he's able to do you know with the modern piano so i think he makes them as interesting as possible and you can tell that uh, he's studied these a lot uh, to figure out you know, what's really going on, both in terms of the compositions and what he, um, you know, sees as the emotional points or, you know, the climaxes and, and interesting things in them. And then yeah, he really does pull off some amazing technical playing. Uh, the first pieces you listen to, the uh, birds are, you know, they're well-constructed and they're interesting, but when he gets to the Bulls uh, Fantasia track eight and then that <laughs> sort of explosion of notes, you're like, whoa. Uh, that really, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, right? If you were starting to low, go into a little low there, you'll be uh, woken up uh, yeah. with that. So, yeah, I thought it was interesting. Um, and I like that he's done something different uh, in terms of uh, the repertoire. Probably no one else would have picked these uh, to work on uh, in, you know, an album yeah. and so uh, I thought it was an interesting listen his technique is really great uh, he does some interesting things with the contrast that's in this music and 
had, you know, a little bit of a knowledge of birds music, but I don't think I've heard this much of bulls uh, playing right. either. So yeah, worth checking out. You probably want to do one disc at a time because there's a lot here. Yeah. Uh, and you'll get some respect for Armstrong's uh, strong technique. And, you know, if this is going to be the direction he goes in sort of creating uh, unique programs of uh, music we don't expect, that could, you know, he is really uh, young. As you mentioned, he was a prodigy, not only in music, but apparently in science and other kinds of studies. So yeah. if he starts pulling in unexpected kinds of uh, discoveries from music that other people aren't playing, uh, it could be an interesting career of uh, adding things. You know, we last week when we were looking at uh, the Gramophone Awards, there was what category was it? It was like all Bach, right? <laughs> it's like, you know. Yeah, okay. that was uh, instrumental, I think. Right? Yeah, a lot With of great guitar. recordings, yeah. but still. Um, so just on the uh, program here, I think he's done something really interesting and uh, reimagining these on piano while keeping the what he can best interpret to be the intent of the composer with modern capabilities and uh, you know being really interested in this kind of thing as a project that's really commendable and uh, yeah it deserves a listen absolutely one of the things I like about um, this uh, the approach he is he seems uh, he's a composer as well and he plays he, he has a great technique not all composers do they you know they compose a lot so they're not practicing every day but he, <laughs> I don't know he apparently is because I don't think he can keep this kind of technique without all, all that practice. But um, composers, when they they don't really adhere to any school of playing the way that pianists do, because pianists will have a teacher and they'll kind of absorb whatever that teacher is kind of, you know, they'll, they'll kind of be in that teacher's kind of school somehow. And they'll come up with their own sort of unique, you know, approach. But nevertheless, um, you can kind of tell, like, which school these people are coming from. Composers seem to escape that somehow. They seem to go directly to the music and whatever whim they'll have about what they think is there, they'll put out and it'll usually be very convincing. In uh, They seem to have a lot of insight into music and I feel like I got a lot of that from uh, Armstrong's playing. I really enjoyed hearing him and I'm going to be uh, watching him. Also, this is uh, one of those Deutsche Grammophon programs that uh, won them the award. We talked about uh, Wikinger Olafsson, I think a few weeks ago, his uh, Mozart and Contemporaries album, and that was a really intriguing program and whole you know, package as well. Um, really enjoying seeing this in classical music, actually. Um, anyway, there you go. That's uh, what we have to say about this one. I, yeah. uh, I liked this a lot. Okay. All right. Yeah, get your Next. Renaissance fix. <laughs> get your Renaissance fix. Okay, now, remember the scene in uh, 2001 okay. a, space, a Space Odyssey where um, the uh, the uh, cavemen or whatever they are, or the ape men are sort of beating, they discover the weapon of the bone and they, yeah, one of them throws the it up, up in the air and then suddenly it turns into the spaceship and we've leapt like millions of years into the future from that scene. That's what we're going to do now, yeah. That's what we're going to do now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Throw that bone, John Bird. And, Here uh, we go. So we're going to go from William Bird to contemporary composers, Arvo Pert, and then uh, Peteris Vasques. Yeah, um, so you, well, you need a blank slate in order to do this. And so that's what you're going to get. Right. Okay. So there's, a, there's an entirety of uh, music history and a gulf of music history in between these uh, these people. But um, I want to kind of, before we uh, talk about I'm going to do Arvo Pert first. 
But I want to before we do that, I want to just kind of mention the uh, these two composers, say something about them. Um, Arvo Pert is the most performed composer in the world today. Apparently, still he has been for years and years. There might be someone who was com- performed more than him. The most performed contemporary living composer is what I want to say, because obviously people like Beethoven and Mozart are still being performed like all over the place. Um, he's from Estonia. And he's around, uh, he's in his 80s now, I think. And um, the other composer, Petrus Vasks, is uh, from Latvia, nearby Latvia. Different culture, but they have certain things in common. They were both uh, Soviet, um, uh, in the Soviet Union when uh, that was going. And that has affected their music. Um, one thing that's interesting about these two is um, it's been said about uh, Bruckner and um, Mahler that uh, Bruckner was holy and he found yeah, he was expressing God in his music whereas Mahler was always looking for God and not finding him so you had these, this kind of like dichotomy between these two composers I kind of feel like the same sort of thing exists between these two composers with Arvo Pert in the, uh, the uh, expressing his uh, experience of God to everybody and Vasques you know searching and seeing the conflict of the world and uh, not quite getting there. In fact, I think Vasques um, may have mentioned something like this at uh, one point when he was <laughs> comparing his music to Pert's. Anyway, let's let's talk about the uh, the music. The first album we're going to talk about is Arvo Pert called t- by Arvo a, a disc of Arvo Pert's orchestral music or nah, some of its chamber music, but instrumental music, let's say, non-vocal music called Tabula Rasa. Um, Parrot is mostly known for his um, vocal, you know, choral music. Most of it written for the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church. It's uh, most of them are on religious texts. Well, there though there are some um, that aren't. Please try to hear his uh, work, "My Heart's in the Highlands," on the, uh, the Scottish poem. A really beautiful work. That's not on this album, so <laughs> you have to look elsewhere for that. Okay, Tabula Rasa, this is performed by the Orchestre de Chambre de Lausanne in Switzerland, uh, conducted by Renaud Capuçon, who's also the violinist on the uh, works that require a violin. There are also various other soloists in the chamber works. All right, there are seven, this is only um, instrumental works. There are seven works in total on this album. They're all pretty short except for one. And all of them have been recorded before, and they're all pretty well known. Because there's nothing new on this album. If you're new to Arvo Pert, this would be a good place to start. You'll hear all of his best music all at the same time. I agree. Yeah. In the booklet notes, which feature only an interview with the conductor, (laughs) Capuçon says that Pert's music, like Bach's, has the ability to fix something, to heal something deep inside of you. An interesting comment, I would say. I think that's why so many people gravitate towards his music. They get a sense that there's something there that's uh, repairing them in a way, or something it's fixing something broken inside of us, or maybe in our uh, culture or society. One wonders if that can radiate forth uh, from music. I think, um, too, um, yeah. in both of these composers, as modern composers approach, although their their uh, style... They both have their own unique approaches with using harmony and other techniques. Uh, the music is uh, inherently approachable and yes. uh, yeah. understandable, and both in 
the sounds that you hear and in the sort of, um, how can I say, the blocks, the building blocks of the compositions. And so although you'll hear some unusual or non-standard harmonic techniques and uh, what they're trying to represent in the music, you may not uh, understand unless you read about it. Uh, if you give the music attention, you will find enough in there uh, familiar to your ear and also pleasing and also the progression of the sounds and the works uh, will be comprehensible and satisfying to you. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people may say that uh, oh, I don't like contemporary classical music or yeah, it doesn't I'd... sound nice or it's too complicated. I, I believe these are two of the best composers that uh, anyone yeah, who likes Yeah, the two of the best music, living composers, absolutely. As, as far as, yeah, you know, just being uh, music that uh, with a minimal investment of your attention, you definitely get something out and find something beautiful in the works uh, that they create. Yeah, they both create beautiful moments at least, whereas uh, Paired, his works are generally beautiful all the way through. He, he really mm -hmm. just, just create his own world in his music. So if contemporary music is something that puts you off, maybe because you heard some uh, uh, like 12 tone music or Schoenberg, I need to mention <laughs> that's not contemporary music anymore. Not that's anymore. something from the 20th century. Yeah. And it's it's done now. Now so it's still used a little bit, but as, as an expressive thing, but nobody actually composes completely in that idiom anymore. They'll use elements of it, you know, like in their uh, compositions, but no worries, that doesn't happen at all here. This music is very uh, tonal yeah. and um, often diatonic, which means it's kind of has keys yeah, and things I like that. I feel that, that um, with these composers, uh, so much of that 20th century music was sort of the slave to a technique or a new approach. Right. That, That's what wound up happening. Yeah. yeah, things got fit into this new paradigm. And I think these composers, um, the arc of the work and the point of the expression was ultimately what was important to them. And they did, they had their own style and uh, approaches and techniques that they used. But the overall story or the theme of the uh, composition, which they both express very well, if you read about, they, they explain what they're doing in their works. Um, that That is ultimately what was most important to them and which guided their approach. And that comes through the arc of the compositions. And uh, I find, you know, all of their works, something that I can follow along. And even in the, you know, sort of limited places where I hear something that I'm really not sure what's going on. Uh, those yeah, are right. sort of in the minority of you know, the types mm -hmm. of passages. And I'm, I'm able to uh, map them out in my mind and find things that uh, sound really lovely and yeah. also surprising. Uh, but in total, they're really satisfying works. And um, yeah. so I, I think they have a broad appeal for, you know, people who haven't heard them yet uh, to well enjoy them. Parrot's music is really unique too in that he seems to achieve this kind of stillness this meditative sort of quality in his music, and especially on the works that we hear on this disc. Um, Capuçon, Renaud Capuçon, the violinist and conductor on this um, album, says that uh, Parrot's music comes from the depths, and it's elevated. Yeah, this is music 
it's it it feels weird for me to say that it's easy on the ear. Um, it's it's there's nothing offensive about this. It really is very uh, mellifluous, yeah. but it's there's a heaviness and a depth to it that's think, really going to make you feel like a full like human being. It's like you're not hearing light music here, even though it doesn't no. sound like there's a lot going on. I think that it it never uses like he doesn't use overly complex things when he can express his ideas with sort of, um, you know, I don't want to say simple, but I want to say um, not overly uh, dense sort of mm -hmm. uh, things. So the, the, the denseness, there are some dense harmonies and mm -hmm. sort of uh, tone colors created with a palette of things. But as far as what's going on rhythmically or in the lines of the composition, I think he is sort of a less is more kind of approach uh, that creates a sense of honesty, but also something that uh, is not aiming to astound you with the technical aspects of what's going on, but pulls you in to appreciate the tones, the beauty, and than the logic of where he's going with that. And uh, so to me, it's music that even though it may be unusual compared to some other things, I can understand what he's trying to do and the direction the music is going. Um, I, I feel like it's an honest expression rather than something that's trying to wow me with some sort right. of uh, technique. Yeah, one of the things it's what you mentioned the honesty, and that really comes across too in things like when you hear a string section, you'll hear the rough texture of the strings. Like we we generally think of strings, mass strings, as having the sheen to them, but that's not the case in uh, Parrot's music. There's kind of a roughness of the bow going across the the strings, and you hear that very clearly in his music, and there's something really honest about that, in right. a way, so I, I think that's what part of what you mean by honesty. Another thing that makes these works so appealing is that they're in modal harmony, and that's so appealing. I just wish, like, modal harmony yeah. was, like, a, a big thing. They're, they're, it, it tends to come into vogue every once in a while and then go away, um, but church music is modal harmony, and it has this, it often has this kind of floaty quality in the sense that there's no you don't have the sense of gravity where it's all heading towards this one tone where it's going to be at rest. Um, it, it, so, and this is part of the reason why they used this in church because it kind of felt like it wasn't tied to the earth. It was kind of floating above the ground or something like that. Whereas like dance music would be, you know, kind of diatonic and tonal and you don't want to tie you to the earth. Um, okay. So you do hear that rough texture of the strings. And I think that sound is integral an integral part of these pieces. Not only that, on this particular recording, um, you hear that extremely well. These, this is an exceptionally well-recorded set of uh, of uh, of these works. Um, I want to mention there's a really famous recording um, of Parrot's music released on the ECM label, also called Tabula Rasa. Um, in the 1970s, featuring Gidon Kramer and Tatiana Grudenko, and the composer Alfred Schnitka on the prepared piano, and Keith Jarrett on the piano in uh, when they played Fratres. So it's it's quite an all-star cast, and it's a great recording for the time. But I think I, I can't that that recording is so famous; it's just sort of legendary. But uh, I I think this um, 
this recording is so clean and so detailed. It's it's really something to hear. I think it's uh, well worth hearing. Also, the pacing of all the works is really beautiful. Let's start with the first work, Tabula Rasa. This is in two movements. It's written for two violins, string orchestra, and prepared piano. A prepared piano is a piano that's prepared, that has like certain objects wedged between the strings so that it has like almost like a cymbalom type uh, sound okay uh, John Cage apparently invented this but uh, it's occasionally used. it's really an interesting uh, thing because you never it's, the person's hitting the keys and you never know what sound you're going to hear depending on how the piano is prepared um, in this case it's used very gently okay we have two movements the first shorter movement is called Ludus they both have Ludus L-U-D-U-S which is um, it means a game or fun or diversion in Latin okay so we're getting um, these two violins playing. The, the way the work begins is really interesting, too. The two violins start on a sustained note on their lowest and highest notes. Okay, so you're hearing both the highest and the lowest note the violin is capable of making um, at, the, uh, at the very beginning. And then the orchestral strings play like a ticking pattern that just keeps repeating and uh, leads to solo material from the violins, which is different each time. Um, so it's repetitive, but it's not. It's kind of interesting. The process is repeated throughout the movement, and the, the recording is so clear. The articulation on the violins is absolutely superb. Um, this has better sound than that early ECM recording, and we think of ECM as being this well-recorded label. Um, the prepared piano's chimes in this movement come through with a kind of physicality. They they sort of um they're, they're sort of forward and they're they're but they're soft and they really just sort of impact the body in a gentle way. It kind of feels like a you're getting a little uh, gentle shiatsu done if there's such a thing. I don't know. Shiatsu seems to always <laughs> cause pain to me, but it does kind of feel like it's sort of pressing on uh, some important points of your body and maybe healing you. I don't know. You can feel the vibration in the room with you. And a lot of details in this score that I hadn't picked up in earlier recordings register clearly here, such as the violins playing in octave harmony. That can often sound like a single violin, but I was able to distinguish the two of them here. So this is really just fantastic if you have an ear for um, good recordings and really clear sound. The second movement, Silentium, Silence. Um, is a quiet movement and it's longer than the first and it really sounds like a long conclusion I guess to what we heard in the uh, first movement uh, the material is again very repetitive but you know not unappealing because of that uh, it comes across here as mournful though it's not really as playful as in the first movement again very clear sound the solos are all fantastic rich tone violins and the prepared the prepared piano given is given real presence in the score really beautiful it's the 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 piano generally plays in its lower sort of register so it really kind of is very different than the sound you get on the violins uh, the tapering off of the dynamics as the movement goes on and instruments individually stop playing is really beautiful and it's it's not noticeable right away but once the pattern establishes itself you really sort of draw attention to it um what you might want to do if you're listening to this on um, one of our streams that we've, uh, we're have we going to post for this, listen to the very quiet and beautifully captured descending bass at around the 13 minute and 30 second mark of this second move movement. The ending is exquisite in its quietness. This might be the best recording of this work, but please, the original remains a classic. Okay. Next, we have the very famous 
Fratres, Fratres, which um, is a work that was composed without fixed instrumentation. And indeed, it's been um, arranged for lots of ensembles and is still being arranged for new ensembles to this day. On this particular recording, I should mention the work originally was uh, composed in 1976, and the first although it's not really official that this is the way the original um the because he wants the uh instrumentation to be unfixed but the first performance was for chamber orchestra this particular version for violin string orchestra and percussion was uh arranged in 1992 um the first performance okay starting with the violin arpeggio now <clears throat> the work on violin and piano, the violin and piano version starts with this elaborate violin arpeggio, like this kind of figuration back and forth um, on the violin. And it's pretty impressive to hear. Um, this part is left out of certain arrangements of this work because if you're if you're on say the twelve cello version that we hear in the ECM recording of this, that that part is just eliminated because the cellos just don't won't do that. Um, but the violin arpeggio is heard here, and Capuzon plays it well. It's well recorded, and he actually gets a nice tone on the lower notes. Usually, you just hear the person, you know, just kind of, you know, going at it on these um, on 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 all the strings of the violin. But he actually pulls out the uh, the musical material really well. The orchestra and percussion doesn't explode on the as the piano does usually in the violin and piano version. Instead, it goes for a haunting, shimmery attack. On the strings, I noticed this particular uh, the tempo in this piece is a bit fast when the violin comes in. Um, this is a very slow meditative work. I think that the uh, the slightly faster tempo sort of takes away a bit of the um, the emotion that this work is able to elicit. But nevertheless, it sounds really beautiful. The timbre is beautiful on this from the uh, string orchestra and the solo violin harmonics are really gorgeous too. There are really no complaints. I think he could have, it could have been a shade slower in tempo, I think, but hardly anything to complain about. It's a good, good performance. The rest of the works on this album are very short. Uh, first we have Summa for string orchestra. This is the fourth track. Uh, the orchestra sounds smaller here than I've heard on this work on other albums. It picks up a lot of detail gorgeous it's a gorgeous melancholy work in modal harmony then we have one of my favorite um, of um, Pert's orchestral works Siloan's Siloan's song from 1991 Um, for string orchestra it's calmer a little melancholy beautiful um, modal harmony it builds to a loud warm climax and it's a nice heartfelt performance the sixth track Darf Ich which means may I in German um, this is, features Capuçon on the solo violin. This is for solo violin and string orchestra from 1995. Um, there are bell percussion in this piece that I really enjoyed, that are really gorgeous and register very well in the recording. Um, the violin is placed further forward in this work than in Fratres, I've noticed, and Capuçon gets a really beautiful harmonic sound from his instrument toward the very end of this very brief piece. It's only about three minutes long. Another famous work by um, Pert is the seventh um, track, Spiegel im Spiegel, um, which I guess is Mirror in Mirror, so mirrored things, 1978. This is for violin and piano. This is the only chamber work on the um, album and features Guillaume Bellome on the piano, um, as he was in Tabula Rasa as well on the prepared piano. 
Um, he plays this sort of arpeggiated chord all the way through the work, and I liked his slow clockwork playing of that figure. Capusan sounds more sensitive here, probably because of the tempo and uh, what Bellom is doing on the piano. Um, um, this is really as simple as music gets, and yet there's a lot of emotion here. Beautiful, touching work. Give that a listen, absolutely. And the uh, album ends with a work called uh, Für Lenart. I should have looked up who this was. He was a, I think he was a um, sort of um, patron of music. Okay, in memoriam. This is for his death in 2006 for string orchestra. This starts with a string swell played forte. The texture thins out as the piece goes on. The mass strings dwindle into groups. And then there are short episodes between a small group of strings and the tutti. The mass strings take over at the end. And the piece ends as if in mid-sentence. It just kind of cuts off. You get the sense of that this is to be continued somehow. And this is the last piece on the album. It's sort of an odd way to end the album. There's really no closure here. Uh, the piece is a lament. and has a melancholy profile. And uh, we end the program with the renewal that comes from grief. So this music is all very simple in conception, yet possesses enormous psychological weight. Peret's music really is a miracle. These works are well-known and available elsewhere, but these recordings are beautifully recorded and performed. I'd go for this absolutely if sound quality is your top priority. And uh, remember, the Guidon Kramer Tabula Rasa is still a classic on ECM Records. If you want to hear that, I would give that a listen absolutely. Yeah. Indeed, an amazing sound and recording, and the performance of Tabula Rosa is uh, really dynamic, uh, yeah. the most dynamic I've heard. And I've listened to a lot of other recordings of uh, Peretz's music, but this is the most engaging I've heard yet. Uh, what do I have? Another one? I, actually, I think I maybe loads. <laughs> you shared this one with me. I have one on the Naxos of Tabula Rosa, uh, huh. the Ulster orchestra with Takuo Yuasa. Uh, okay, I remember years. that one, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I liked it, but it just didn't have the visceral quality uh, that this recording does. And uh, one of the things I think this recording has is the instrumental balance is actually, you know, uh, much better than anything I've heard before. All mm. the parts are really well represented you, you can hear everything the clarity is wonderful and then you've got a real passionate uh dynamic performance by all of the performers uh, in there so it really made it come alive again to me although i've heard that work uh the Rosso many times before and then the other pieces keep that same character uh, so if you haven't uh checked out parrot's music i think this would be the best place to start because you're not going to get uh an engaging uh, emotional performance to this level uh, on other recordings. And then the clarity on the recording, uh, this is Arato label, by the yeah. way. Uh, this is fabulous. Uh, so, yeah, as uh, introduction, or even if you've heard this uh, work many times before, uh, I can really recommend this recording. Yeah, I want to mention, too, how... People like us who are kind of familiar with uh, classical music in general, you think Mozart, Beethoven, but these works by Arvo Parrot are also very familiar to us. They're just in, they've just been around. I've been hearing all the works on this um, recording, or most of them anyway, uh, for most of my, for my, the entirety really of my classical listening life, which really started for me in college. 
Um, so they're very familiar works with me for me as um, as familiar as say a work by Beethoven and Mozart. So it's kind of nice that they're part of the um, the, yeah just the uh, uh, that contemporary works are part of that uh, the whole sound image that I get of classical music. We often think of classical music as being something old, you know, but doesn't it's not. There are new works being written all the time and we really need to be paying attention to them especially now that uh we're getting back to a sort of tonality and there there's some really beautiful works being written yeah it I does should mention, uh, sound yeah. beautiful right i should mention that uh i, I was I, I wanted to say this when you were talking about um contemporary music part of the reason music went crazy sort of in the uh mid 20th century was because of world war 2 and the horrors that uh, people experienced in that war. It was thought after the war, after especially the Holocaust, and, we, and people found out what had happened at the uh, the Nazi death camps, that um, emotion couldn't be felt in music anymore. It would sort of be sort of, um, th- there's something vulgar about it, so we couldn't write in a romantic vein, although some people continued writing like that. So there was this idea that music had to be intellectual, and uh, that turned off audiences who still wanted to hear um, emotion in music. Um, they wanted to hear energy, too. Rock and roll became big. Jazz was huge in the 50s and 60s. Um, and um, we're not in that era anymore. The only thing people could do is like be have a sense of humor. And Georgi Ligeti kind of had music like that. But since the fall of the Soviet Union, so around the year, and really before that, but we didn't know about it in the West until around the fall of the Soviet Union, um, music... Um, and especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, remember the Soviet Union being communist had banned all religion. And once it had fallen, uh, Christianity really came back into full force. And a lot of these um, people started going to church again. And they wanted to just have these uh, spiritual religious lives and be in those communities. And a lot of religious music started being written, such as the music by Oliver Parrott, or music with great spirituality to it, like we're going to, well, maybe not these particular uh, Vasque's works, but in general. So there's a, a spiritual bent in the music of Eastern Europe that came after the fall of the Soviet Union, and that's really what renewed um, contemporary music. So we should really should be listening to this. And uh, still, for me, the music of uh, Eastern Europe, to an extent, you know, modern Russian music and um, the uh, Scandinavian countries and Finland as well have has been really fascinating uh, since the uh, end of the and the end of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think those kind of historical things, you know, we can <clears throat> say, oh, you know, something can't be fun or beautiful anymore. But it's, mm. I think it, it splits things in different directions. Um, I think in pop music, you know, during the Vietnam War, uh, you get like all these angry protest songs that sort of came out because, you know, this is... Uh, I talk about it with uh, young people. You know, today, of course, the social media is the uh, outlet for angst and uh, people's opinion. But in the 60s, it was still music. And, you know, the artists were sort of um, a megaphone uh, platform for young people's feelings. You know, so you had, uh, well, first, early in the 60s, you had the sort of the veiled protests of Bob Dylan, where you had to sort of get the implications of his music. By the end of the Vietnam War, they were outright, you know, yeah. uh, blatant uh, things that could get by the censors. But at the same time, you had this sort of, you know, hard 
political message and reactions that were very focused on the evils and ugliness that's going on. You had, you know, the Beach Boys with, you know, right. Don't Worry Baby and songs <laughs> like that, that just, com- they provided a complete, you know, tonal escape from the right. bad things that were going on in the day. And I think it's just part of human nature that at any time, uh, yeah, people are going to react to their environment in a, in a variety of ways. And although someone may point a finger and say, you know, this can't, you know, we can't appreciate this kind of uh, beauty or we don't have the naivety, naivety to sort of, um, you know, think yeah. like this or enjoy this. It's not really true. Um, you're going to see different types of emotional reactions to events uh, in in the art forms. And uh, if you if you go back, you can't do it at the time uh, that something's happening because, you know, you need that sort of distance of time and the benefit of analysis, analysis to see what develops out of that. But I think, you know, difficult times will create difficult music, but they'll also create music of great beauty and, um, you know, return to earlier forms and um, also a sort of mourning and also a celebration of things. And I think that's one interesting connection of society and music that uh, always happens in any kind of time period uh, in the, in the distant past in you know the recent uh, history and then probably right now but we probably won't be able to talk about it until we can look back uh, at some point in the future right but we are going through a good uh, phase in uh, classical music composition right now um, tonality is back it's not necessarily romantic there are kind of um modernist and um, post-war sort of elements in music, but they're not necessarily ugly. Although, you know, things can be appealingly ugly. Uh, I just yeah. think of a lot of think I think of a lot people, of rock and roll. I mean, you know. I think composers feel I mean, like it's Distorted okay. guitars are ugly, but they're exciting, you know, so. It's okay to write <laughs> some modern classical music that actually sounds beautiful. That's okay. Right. I think people feel like it's okay to do that again, which is nice. Um you know. Yeah, and one person who thinks that that's uh, okay is the, our next composer, Pateris Pateris Vasks, Latvian composer, and he is the most performed Latvian composer, contemporary Latvian composer. So he doesn't get the uh, most performed composer award, which Arvo Paird gets. But um, I had mentioned that he's kind of looking for God, but these. This particular program doesn't have anything to do with that. There are other works by him where he's kind of kind of juxtapose he likes to juxtapose the uh the kind of a sort of beauty and ugliness sort of together in his works and try to like uh sort of reconcile them but that's not what happens here because um we're hearing a performance of his oboe concerto from the year 2018 this work's only three years old this is about as new as a work can get and get on a cd if this was a hot dog you could still eat it and it would (laughs) not have degraded (laughs) Oh wow! I had <laughs> to pull it off the shelf and be just as fresh as it was. You say that to the composer if you met him. You know, your work is like a hot dog. Yeah. <laughs> right. Still fresh right. after three years. Yeah, we have. Uh, well, it's it's still you know it's still a fresh work. This is its first recording, and two other shorter works from the 1980s on this disc. Now, uh, the fr- one is called Message uh, Vestigiums. I hope I said I don't know how to pronounce Latvian. Uh, message from 1982, and also Lauda, which are Latin lauds or praise um, for symphony orchestra. Uh, message is for two piano strings and percussion. Um, so the 
soloist, the oboe soloist, Albrecht Meyer, one of the world's leading oboe soloists. He's German. And the uh, Latvian National Symphony Orchestra is playing these, conducted by Andres Poga. I have a feeling that on, like oboe players were just waiting for this work to be composed. Yeah, this is on the Ondine label, I want to mention. Okay, as far as oboe concertos go, I, I the only one I can really think of is... Uh, the uh, Vaughn Williams one, because that one gets recorded right. often. You, you've heard that one, yes, right? Yes, yeah. And like this one, it's also very pastoral. It kind of has to do with the countryside. Um, the Oboe Concerto is the major work on this particular album. It's um, three movements. And uh, Vask admits that he sees the oboe as a pastoral instrument, and that's very clear from what we hear in this work. Two pastoral movements. I mean, come on. Yeah, two of them are very passionate. Actually, the third one arguably is too, but we'll get to that when we yeah, get there. It's, it's, they both have it in it's the It's a name, little darker, they, yeah. though. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so drama and tragedy, the composer says, do not come to mind when we hear the oboe. Now, this is a composer that really um, makes his bank in drama and tragedy, and he's not uh, going that way here. Uh, so he'd like this work to be viewed as akin to a human life with its beginning, period of maturity, and departure, and the departure doesn't end in darkness either. He kind of seems to think that something goes on, judging by the ending of this work. Okay, and he would because he he kind of writes in a spiritual vein a lot of the time. It kind of makes sense. You could also think of this as a long cosmological day, which lasts a hundred years. That's kind of how he wants you to think about it. So you have the, the the sunrise, the afternoon would be the peak of the day. Then there's the evening, which would be the third movement, and at the very end of the um, third movement we kind of hear the opening of the uh piece again as though the sun is rising again sort of so it's sort of like a cycle it's just gonna keep happening all right so the first movement morning pastoral oh even the title sounds appealing doesn't it i just kind of want to hear that and it begins with this um okay vasks i should mention he says that the statement this movement makes is quote this is how we live here and this is what my country sounds like. Wow. Okay. That would be a nice thing if let's everybody go. would just write a piece like <laughs> yeah. that, huh? Yeah, let's go. Yeah, let's I would go. say this sounds I want, like... I want to have breakfast in uh, Latvia, Latvia tomorrow, right? Yeah. yeah, this this sounds like a place I want to be going by this uh, this um, movement. It begins with this lovely shimmering sound in the massed strings. And uh, this is sort of the sunrise of the piece. The oboe enters full-voiced above this gentle bed and pastoral is indeed the operative word here there's summary folk song quality to the melody it's accompanied by some punctuation in wood blocks you hear some of these like gentle percussion throughout the movement uh there's a lot of nicely placed uh gentle percussion luscious orchestration this whole opening had me smiling and feeling warm oh it's so nice you really need to hear this listeners go to that right now make this the first thing you hear it's wonderfully executed, too. The oboe's lines are modal, probably pentatonic, because it's echoing folk songs, and many folk songs are in a pentatonic mode. Now, if you if you don't know what that means, think of rock rock music, rock music uh, guitar solos. They're usually pentatonic. So it's got that kind of like immediately appealing sort of sound. You hear it in a lot of folk songs, too. Um I'm thinking about it. When I listened to this, I was thinking about how nice it is to hear the oboe take the lead in such a large work. It's not something you hear mm-hmm. often. 
Okay, the opening reaches a climax three minutes in, then we get more, a more subdued passage for the orchestra. The oboe eventually comments on that. It's always easy, easy to single out the soloist, that nasal sounds high up in the register is easy to spot, and he seems rather placed, placed rather forward in the mix. But that doesn't obscure the orchestral detail, which is very clear. This is another excellently recorded work. Um, this section doesn't sing as freely as the opening. It sounds more like it's headed somewhere. So the focus is on the progression. There are lovely moments of winds in the orchestra imitating bird song. Folk song abounds. At seven minute mark, a climax is released. Rele- is I can't talk anymore. Is reached, and we're off to the second movement. And uh, the first movement seems sort of introductory. Uh, it, it sets a mood, and then in the second movement we get a scherzando, which means a joking. Um, this is the longest movement. It's 14 minutes long, double the length of the first movement. And Vasques suggests this can be thought of as a pastoral scene in which three young girls are sitting in a rose garden and an interested suitor comes by. The movement contains a lot of references to Latvian folk song. And the movement moves between like a 3-4 and a 4-4 rhythm. You notice this. It's pretty, it's pretty easy to spot. The whole rhythmic pattern mm-hmm. changes often. And it's a nice effect. Uh, the tone completely changes at one point to a sort of bumbling march rhythm with the oboe playing a more restricted melody. Um, the reedy tones always evoke the countryside, though. The rhythm starts to sway in 3-4 time in what's called that Siciliano rhythm that I mentioned before, and the oboe plays a melody in three. There's another sudden gorgeous rhythm and melody change after the music had reverted back to a square 4-4 four, four at about two, two, the 2 minute and 40 second mark. The melody is in three. The more severe 4 4 rhythm reappears at four minutes and 20 seconds. I'm guessing that the 3 4 rhythm evokes nature, while four, the 4 4 rhythm indicates man's attempts to control and ruin it. <laughs> he mentions that he's sort of want, he's, he's got that dichotomy going on here. Uh, there's a long solo segment for the oboe around the seven minute mark in which a pleading tone is assumed. So he's sort of like pleading with humanity to stop destroying the environment. It's recorded really close, and you can hear the oboe's breaths here as he readies to play his phrases. Uh, it's very intimate. Uh, there's a moment of anxiety in the melody as the oboe's solo speeds up at the 9-minute mark, then the plea returns. The cadenza ends at 11 minutes. This is a very long cadenza at 4 minutes. The opening swaying Siciliano rhythm comes back. Remember, Siciliano rhythm is bum, 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 bum. It's in 3, with the second uh, beat missing. Well, the second a tone missing in the second beat as does the theme it gets interrupted by sizzling strings and the theme changes to a dotted rhythm in 4-4 it's a very appealing ending as we hear the orchestra and all of its brighter sounds with twinkling percussion along with kettle drums and this is attached to the third movement there's no pause which is called evening pastoral which is sort of an odd name because it doesn't really sound like a pastoral it doesn't sound like a countryside thing it's a little darker um, folk song references can also be heard in this movement. It's also pretty long at 12 minutes. And it starts ominously with darker tones playing forte in the orchestra. The oboe enters gently accompanied by rising strings. And then the English horn comes in. It's sort of like it's the oboe's pal here. It's a little more restricted in its um, range. And I think that's what uh, Vasques wants. It's given a solo line to compliment it. It's sort of like the oboe's companion. I guess he's kind of found someone mm. to be friends with in this piece. 
Um, the oboe theme is plaintive. The English horn and oboe trade off gentle laments. Probably about the state of the world. At about half the halfway mark, the orchestra picks up on the laments and punctuates it with ominous percussion. Everything quietens at the 7 minute 45 second mark and the oboe plays. It sounds a bit muffled and far away here. Its friend, the English horn, joins in and sings along with it. The writing between these two instruments is conversational, and the majority of this movement is melancholy in tone, an odd way to end a concerto, and even a, a work as bright as this. At the 10-minute mark, with two minutes left to go, we hear the shimmering strings of the opening again. Then the oboe comes in with a pastoral solo, accompanied by subtle wood blocks in the percussion. So the new day is beginning after 100 years of one day, and uh, we're going to have these re events repeat. Or after death, the oboe protagonist has reached a better place, or he's starting a new life or some on some other plane. The change of color is rather sudden and indicates an unexpected new beginning. So in the end, this is a very positive work and uh, has the good overcoming the bad. The musical language between the recent oboe concerto and the two early works that follow are very different. We'll get to those in a minute. Do you want to talk about the oboe concerto first? Or? I thought this... More than any work I've heard, it brings out the best of the tonal qualities of the oboe. Mm. And then it gives it, you know, this setting of the best sort of uh, environment where that sound can be displayed to full effect. Uh, and then the orchestral images are also really beautiful um, mm. in that setting. And then you get these, well, two pastoral movements. The first one is more of what we normally expect. And uh, the final one, as you say, is a bit darker, but he's going for something different. And it's nice how he brings that English horn in too. Uh, so I thought this was really engaging and really, you know, beautiful. And uh, I can't think of anything, any kind of piece that's, a you know, such an extended and uh, beautiful showcase for uh, oboe. And uh, just putting it out there, like, you know, normally you're going to hear this, you know, as a small part in a quiet section of an orchestral work where the oboe gets a little bit of shine and, you know, then it moves on to something. But here, you know, to have a feature concerto for oboe and then also being able to be heard with all these other interesting orchestral parts uh, behind it. Uh, it makes it unique and uh, really interesting and satisfying. So, yeah, a great work. I'm going to listen to this uh, a few more times. I, I will, too. I'll go back to this. And listen, I urge you, if you don't, if you think you don't like contemporary music, go listen to this right now and like it. I don't even have to tell you to like it. You will. It's really appealing. It's very good. As long as you like the nasal sound the oboe makes. It's got this kind of woodsy sort of... um pastoral sound. I could see that sound turning certain people off, but not me. I like it a lot. Yeah, oboe is cool. Okay, so we have two more um, one movement works on this um, album, and it's um, they're both from the 1980s. Now, the thing to keep in mind, one thing about classical music is it's very much of its time, and we have a you know, centuries of this kind of music. And it's pretty important to uh, keep in mind when certain works were written, if you know. Now, Vasques was living in Latvia when these two works were written, and they were still under Soviet rule. That's kind of important to understand. Now, Gorbachev had become the uh, the leader of the Soviet Union, so there was a thaw in artistic expression. And while Gorbachev was in charge, um, the, the satellite, what would become the satellite Soviet countries, started to... Uh, 
you know, freely sort of um, advocate for, um, how can I say, freedom or, um, you know, a, a more free sort of, um, you know, cultural sort of um, expression in their uh, in their countries. Now, this first piece called Message, or in uh, Latvian, something resembling vestigiums. 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 I think those that the line over the E and the I are kind of like in Japanese, where it's just like an extended, mm. you know, it's like long two, vowel. You know, a long vowel, but it's a vowel held for a double its length, sort of. Um, this is written for um, two pianos, percussion, and string. What, what is this? Let me, I got to check. Yeah, string I wrote this orchestra, down. percussion, and two pianos. Yeah. Uh, there's no indication on the album who these uh, performers are. Um, so I'm guessing it's just people from the orchestra. Um, this is a one movement work and Vasques wants to communicate how beautiful the world is and what we and our hubris are doing to it. So I guess you could say it's an environmental work in a way, but this is from the 1980s. It's not one of these, um, sort of, you know, Greta Thunberg didn't have anything <laughs> to say about this. Mercy, <laughs> mercy a, me. He was way ahead of, way ahead of that. <laughs> he was aware of what was happening back then. How dare right, you? This... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. So the work starts quietly with pianos and strings playing unsteadily in the bass register. It kind of sounds drunken to my ears, but Vasque says it's in the quiet movement It that it represents the quiet movement of the earth leading to sunrise. Repeated notes on the piano punctuate a build up to higher registers in the strings. Uh, this all builds to a splashy piano figuration and airy strings. Uh, so far, this work is all about timbre, the sound the instruments are making. And in fact, that's going to be that's very important in modern music in general. Listen to the sounds the various instruments are making. The composers choose those sounds because they want them to register in your ear for a very specific reason. Okay, a pizzicato figure is played in the violins as the lower strings, and the music builds up, and we get a repeated melodic figure in the strings the new episode begins quietly building to forte and this is repeated throughout the work this piece sounds sort of minimal and episodic one wonders how Vasques uh, came up with this especially since minimalism is really an American thing Steve Reich Philip Glass Terry Riley and later John Adams the material is different each time there will be some identifiable figuration as the music builds to crescendo then suddenly it quiets again. Each time the orchestra builds to a climax, the music sounds more joyful until there's a breakdown at the 10-minute mark and the percussion tries to go against the ecstasy in the building strings. The music dies down again at the 12-minute, 30-second mark and builds up to a more fraught crescendo to end the piece. In a way, Vasque's vision is positive. He says, The cosmos rejoices. We, the insane, will be lost, but the miracle of the world will remain. Anyway, I, I have a I, I do question that. This is one of the things that drives me crazy about the uh, about the uh, environmental movement. They they say we're harming the earth, but we're we're not. We're harming ourselves. The earth is going to go on. We, we might not. You know, it's it's almost like they don't want to talk about the fact that humanity can be destroyed by all of this. It's 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 a really funny thing. But Vasques understands what the uh, stakes are, and I really appreciate that. Did you say steaks? Oh, are there any steaks on the uh, grill there? I had a, I ate a whole chicken today, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll keep eating steaks no matter what they do to the environment. Because I heard okay. 
that like yeah. soybean production is actually worse for the soil. But oh, really? Uh, I won't be around to worry about it. So um, yeah, this, I thought this was an interesting work, uh, and what I what I thought was, you know, kind of, uh, I was listening for okay, uh, you know, string orchestra, percussion, and two pianos. So it sort of sets you up to think, okay, why does he need two pianos, and what are they going to do? Um, but here, uh, you know, they're just part of the overall. Uh, picture that he's uh, painting here and uh, so with these kind of huge clustering chords that he gets uh, the 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 pianos are panned in the stereo too and so there's these you know these really uh, close tones and clustered chords and then they alternate in the you can hear them in the right channel is the lower piano and then the higher end is in the left and so I, I think that's why he has two pianos here, uh, just getting this uh, sort of effect in the big wash of sound. There's a, there's a lot of things going on in the uh, kind of tones and textures in here. And um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's, it's the a, percussion is used really well and uh, you, know, you get all these kind of textures. So. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed this. Kept me uh, interested to the end because it does change up a lot and the direction right. uh, and the moods and things. So, um, yeah, whatever the vestigums or however you say it, the, the message. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty interesting work to follow through. I think Greta Thunberg would enjoy this piece. I don't know. <laughs> you think it would make her smile? <laughs> well, yeah, maybe it would be nice to see for once. <laughs> No, we'll have to get we'll have to get her on the program and have her listen to it and you know have, make mm. her smile. All right, last piece on the work, Lauda. In the 1980s, this is written in 1985. Um, there was a folklore movement that started growing in the Soviet Latvia, and um, this particular piece um, sort of reflects that a bit. It starts with a chiming church bell. And an alto flute, a rarely heard instrument, sort of like a low flute, and it's a pretty fascinating sound. It just kind of doesn't sound like a normal flute. It's a little, it's lower. It's got more it's got body darker to tones to yeah. it. Yeah, it's got body, more body. It doesn't sound like a bird, basically. Although, um, the melody it plays is, sounds modal, and I said that it sounds like something out of Russian church music. But... In the notes, it's described as being like the subdued sound of an oriole. So I guess it does a bird's, and it does have a bird sound. Hmm. I didn't really pick that up though. Yeah, it's very uh, rich. Those tone. aren't Vasque's words, by the way. That's like a music critic's words. Yeah, it's um, rich, and then it also, as it goes into this, it leads to some really nice bass clarinet notes in there too. So yeah, in fact, this um, particular motif, this um, melody, has been labeled by a music historian as a motif of growth. And it does. It sort of leads to growth in, like you said, the bass clarinet and in other instruments as well. So the slow build stops for new material at the 3 minute 30 second mark. Then there's an upward climb in the strings. The piece reaches a crescendo and then recedes. This seems to be a common part of Vasque's approach in his earlier years. The music builds and then the it's sort of like uh, decrescendos and, you know, and then there's a slow build and then it just sort of quietens down again. Um Quiet new material begins. There's an interplay between wind, wind instruments alternating with percussion. 
The themes sound very Russian or Slavic to my ear and would probably be familiar to Latvian listeners. They could probably identify a lot of the tunes if he's using familiar tunes. Um, I always kind of uh, envy you know, people like, for, for example, Russians who can identify the Russian folk tunes in Rimsky-Korsakov's music. So for us, we can tell the folk tunes. We don't know what they are, you know, unless we actually read books about it or study it. I, I always kind of, you know, the people from that country have like this special, although we we as Americans, you know, we can identify like American tunes pretty easily, like in Ives's, um music or things like that. Right. Although those tunes aren't around anymore, like Turkey and the Straw. Do you actually know how that goes unless if you're... Yeah, unless you that. actually well, you know it. Stephen but, Foster tunes and all that good stuff. Yeah, the Stephen Foster, yeah. but young people don't know it anymore. They don't know it. It's yeah. just not, yeah. They we might hear it on them. Bugs Bunny if it's on Saturday morning, but that's That's true. It. That's how yeah. I know them, really, yeah. from those uh, early cartoons. Okay, so let's see. Where am I in this? Um, okay, there's a brass fanfare at about uh, that cuts off at about the uh, 7 minute 20 second mark, which I liked a lot. There's some good brass um, in here, yeah. Yeah, there is. Okay, quiet new material begins, this time an interplay between wind instruments alternating with percussion. Mm -hmm. The themes sound very Russian or Slavic and would probably be familiar to Latvian listeners, as I said. The pattern of crescendo then quiets, new material continues. At the 15-minute mark, there are some quiet, mournful um, sounds, material, accompanied by wood percussion, which Vesks seems to like a lot. Uh, the tone suddenly brightens, and we hear a rising church-like modal melody in the strings. These melodies tend to wind a circle back to their opening roll, uh, their opening note. And the music ends quietly and hopefully with gentle chimes in the percussion. Uh, one thing that the notes point out is that it's been said that the piece foreshadowed what Latvians call the singing revolution, which allowed Latvia with almost no bloodshed to declare independence in 1990 and actually regain it in 1991. So uh, Vasks uh, is said to have had his kind of, to have sort of seen that, foreseen that in this piece. Very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this piece. And yeah. you get the full, uh, what I like is uh, Vasks is a composer who really uses all of the, you know, the what I like about orchestral music is you got this whole palette of sounds there. And um, <clears throat> so... Starting out with this beautiful alto flute, which gives you, a, you know, this tone. When I first heard it, I had to listen a few times to figure out. I knew it was a flute, but I said, this isn't a regular flute, you know. Mm. And uh, so I thought, well, this is some kind of lower flute. And then I saw in the notes that it was indeed an, an alto, alto flute. flute yeah. So I said, well, that's really cool that, that, you know, he picked. That you would start a piece with that instead yeah. of like use it for a certain and, color. In the and then he, of it. you know, chose an instrument that's not usually in the orchestration because he had the sound in mind. And then that cool bass clarinet uh, coming through there. Uh, and I like how the woodwinds and brass are used uh, in the themes in uh, here. Also, the, the percussion gives a lot of uh, added uh, momentum to the piece but there are also some really uh good sections with really powerful brass at some sort of uh, real crescendo points and uh, so the the whole palette of the orchestra is used really well and then uh there's that point in sort of uh, a little bit past halfway i guess where that it actually develops into this kind of folk dance uh and it's really dancing and then after that when the orchestra comes back more enlarged with the timpani. It sort of becomes this marching procession. Uh, so I felt like 
I don't know. It's sort of, in my mind, it was sort of the folk countryside and then maybe sort of the modern government kind of contrast or, you know, the, something greater that's in this kind of, uh, when it's over the timpani, it, it's sort of this full force thing in contrast with the more playfulness of the folk dance. And as you said, the quiet ending is uh, something you're not quite expecting, but then in the end, it's kind of fitting. And so, yeah, as a tone sort of a journey, it's interesting. Uh, the instruments are used really well. And then the contrasts and the dynamics in the piece are all uh, really engaging. And so a well-constructed piece that's really enjoy enjoyable. Um, I really love yeah. this whole album, and I want to encourage listeners to hear it. Okay. Yeah, so definitely. who who's afraid of contemporary music? Not adult music listeners, especially if you listen to these two albums by Parrot and Vasques. They're just fantastic. Give it a listen. Do yourself a favor. Make your make your week you know, better than it's gonna be. That's <laughs> so, right. And listen to these two albums. They're really great. I mean, I was really floating yeah. all week long, like looking forward to talking about these really. Nothing scary here. In yeah, nothing modern scary. music, no. Mm. In fact, contemporary music is a lot better than uh, mid twentieth century music. Although there's great mid twentieth century music too, if you you, you know, which we're now starting to hear because it wasn't really played back right. then, except uh, in its home country. All right, and the jazz stuff this week was really appealing as well. All right, we're on to jazz, which is a mm. trio of piano trios. A trio of trios. And these that are could all... Be a good, that could be a good episode, Tyler. You want to do that? We could do that. A trio of Maybe. trios. Okay. Now, th this is uh, yeah, a really good program. I've, as I mentioned before, uh, at the beginning of summer, I kind of was searching around for things. There was not really a lot of releases. And then uh, we took a little bit of break over the summer, and there was sort of a burst of new releases uh, that I collected from my sources and so uh, just to keep my mind straight of what I've got out there and get things out uh, before they get too old I started you know putting them together in some sort of theme and uh, last week we had uh, the guitar monks on a regular episode yeah. and so this, this week I had, I had uh, piano trios and I had these three that I wanted to listen to Maybe and piano, uh, piano piano uh, priests this week piano priests yeah or uh, something <laughs> anyway uh, what order I should discuss them and I wasn't sure but I'm going to go so w with the accessibility theme so we've got these two uh, classical works the Parrot and Vasques that I think anyone can enjoy who likes classical music and we're going to start with an or, or album people who don't really yeah, unless you hate don't. classical music I mean you, you know and here we're going to start with an album that I think anyone can enjoy uh, as a matter of fact I found out that this... Uh, can can album, I guess which one it's going to be? Yeah, go ahead. Joe Alterman. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I found out that... This is so uh, appealing. This album actually has presidential approval. <laughs> really? Yeah. And yes. They we By which president? We, well, but, but this... Well, see, that's also part of the appeal that... Oh. Um, well, actually, they contacted uh, Joe Biden, okay. current president of the U.S., actually through his... Um, uh, press secretary, what's this woman's name? Uh, oh, what's her name? Saki uh, or something. Yeah, yeah Jen Saki. Yeah, and she, well, she usually doesn't like to answer any questions, but yeah. about this, they were quite open. And uh, 
Let's see. What is the quote? Joe Biden actually says, yeah, if you don't like Joe Alterman, you ain't a jazz fan. He really said that? You got to be right here. Oh, stop. Well, you know, (laughs) I I was suspicious too. You know, it's a bold statement. If you don't like Joe Alterman, you ain't a jazz fan. Well, because Um, it's so recall something else he said. So I'm having trouble believing this. Well, I thought, you know, this could be a, a partisan thing. So I looked and over and, uh, you know, at uh, what former President Trump had said about this artist, too. And, yeah, he is quoted as saying, Joe Alterman, great guy, great player. He swings bigly. <laughs> <laughs> now I know you're pulling my now leg, you know, I'm, man. I'm pushing. Because I, <laughs> I know Donald Trump doesn't like music. Like, he likes Broadway show tunes, I've heard, and that's it. There, anyway. there, was, an interview, there was an interview with, um, what's it, Penn... Penn and Teller, the, who, who's the Penn guy that Teller? talks? Penn, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. He, he had met Trump and he said he has no interest in music at all. He just has no appreciation of music. Uh, I don't know. Be. I can't can't even imagine. Wouldn't have anything to talk about him with. Do, we, do any president? Well, I guess. Well, well Richard among, Nixon played the piano and Clinton played the sax, right? He played so, sax among playing mm. other things. Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> they're, they're both kind of villains, though. <laughs> so. I thought that, um, well, within those statements, you know, there could be some album titles, but I thought if you don't buy this album, you ain't a jazz fan. That's a bit too negative. But yeah. then I thought, you know, that's been done before because there's the great uh, Bill Evans album on Riverside, I think it is, and the notes by Oren Keep News, which is. Just out of curiosity, where did you get those quotes from? Did you make them up or did you actually see them in his notes or something? I made them up. Uh, okay. Because <laughs> uh, I thought maybe it might have been his like PR agent just no, making no. up stuff. Because no, on no. the back, I wrote a novel called Extreme Music Listeners. Yeah, yeah. And on the back of that novel, there are, um, you know, sort of blurbs about how great the book is. And I wrote all of them. They're not, right. <laughs> they're not real. <laughs> So no, I was just going to put I, I thought maybe Alterman had done no. the same thing. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, if Joe Alterman, if you're listening to this pod, podcast, uh, we apologize for that. But uh, no, that, the album is that good. But I thought, um, yeah, if you don't he buy does, this. He does swing bigly, though. If you don't buy this album, you ain't a jazz fan. <laughs> That's kind of a negative statement. And I think it's already been done before with everyone digs Bill Evans, right? So that's right, a positive right. spin on it. That's been right. done. But I think in the future, he could have an album, you know, like. Joe Alterman swings bigly. <laughs> that could be an apple See, but just the word bigly would put off like half of the population of you know of the two percent of people who listen to yeah, jazz yeah, anyway. Yeah. So like, we're, we're trying to like of jazz listeners. We're right. trying to bump that up to five percent. You know. So anyway, if you don't know Joe Alterman, anyway. uh, this is his uh, latest uh, release, "The Upside of Down," uh, live at Birdland, which is on Ropa Dope. Records, mm. <laughs> nice name, uh, and he's a 32 years old uh, pianist uh, from Atlanta. He's also a NYU New York University graduate, uh, both BA and masters in jazz piano. Uh, as a teen, uh, Oscar Peterson was his hero, which you won't have any problem guessing when you listen to this album. Yeah, uh, and he's also. Uh, uh, been following uh, performances and played with like the likes of Les McCann uh, and Ramsey Lewis. Uh, Downbeat Magazine calls his style rooted in the blues with a touch reminiscent of the great pianists of the 1950s. And uh, that's for sure. Uh, there's not too many people playing the piano like this. Uh, actually, you know, there's sort of 
uh, anti-swing kind of uh, right. thing that has been going on. And, and that's here, a real shame because this is shame. so immediately appealing. And you're going to snap. Is, it's such fun. You're going to snap back to all the things that were great about jazz piano uh, on this album. So you've got Joe Alterman on piano, uh, Nathaniel Schroeder on bass, and Marlon Patton on drums. And uh, apparently Alterman uh, said that he doesn't really prefer recording in a studio and they had uh, laid down uh, recordings from some nights at birdland and he thought well let's just take those uh, tracks and make an album and uh, he was pleased with the result and i'm sure you will be too because this is music that um, yeah i think anyone can enjoy whether you're a jazz fan or not and uh, so it's a collection of tunes uh that uh all really either swing as in uh, swinging uh with the jazz rhythm, or at least have infectious uh, rhythms of various natures that will draw you in. And if uh, you have a chance, uh, check out Joe Alterman's playing style on YouTube. Uh, the technique he uses and the way he uh, bends his knuckles and things while he's playing is uh, really uh, interesting. And he has almost like a spring-loaded hand technique uh, that gives him this amazing rhythmic accuracy. Uh, and it's all put to uh, an effect that brings good fun. Uh, so the album starts out with a tune called The Smudge, which is a tune uh, that Oscar Peterson uh, recorded. And uh, he's swinging it right, sounded familiar. Yeah. Yeah, right from the first right hand tickling uh, or tinkling of the ivories here. Uh, you're going to get that uh, Peterson style vibe. It's bluesy and swinging that borrows a lot from uh, Peterson style. It's got a cool walking bass solo in it. And you'll be off with a smile on your face right from there. Uh, and not only that, he has a lot of really good ideas in yeah. his improvisations as well. Yeah. He's got a, like, he's really quick and sort of witty as far as his, like, uh, you know, improv goes. Yeah. He doesn't run mm. out of ideas. And this album doesn't really feature, like, any many uh, bass or drum extended solos. It's all just him uh, yeah. going off. And he doesn't run out of ideas. He keeps getting all these extended variations of rhythms and ideas. Uh, and it's all really fun. And the crowd really enjoys it. Uh, track two is called Pretty Eyes, Pretty Smile. This is kind of a relaxed bossa ballad. Uh, you'll get the sense of the impressive accents in his playing and some really wonderful two-hand synchronized uh, kind of uh, lines and other work in this track. So he's really good uh, technique. And uh, the way he uh, pulls out accents uh, in lines uh, keeps that uh, rhythmic sense going. And that's a real feature of his playing. Uh, as you may guess from his name, Alterman, I, I presume he is uh, Jewish. And three, we get the tune, uh, Ose Shalom. Uh, it's kind of the Hebrew prayer. Uh, a prayer, uh, He Who Makes Peace. And this is a really cool and fun tune. Um, it starts with this sort of um, Middle Eastern kind of uh, vein with open fourths. Uh, but uh, then that he turns into a really groovy blues romp uh, from that figure. And so the tune, once it gets going, also has really nice chord turnarounds. And so you get this alternating sort of uh, ominous uh, theme, and then it sort of gets bluesy and goes through these uh, nice chord changes. Uh, there's some really excellent funky bass work and a tight drum groove here. 
and that uh, gives Alterman a lot of uh, backing for some really soulful soul links. So this is a really cool tune, one of the standouts on the album for me. Uh, number four, mm-hmm. uh, jazz standard uh, Time After Time. Uh, not the uh, Cyndi Lauper <laughs> tune, but... Yeah. Which is also really good, yeah, which really has nice also song. become a jazz standard Yeah, now. it's also become jazz. Uh, anyway, this not is a relaxed one, no. swing. Uh, some, he's got some really tight left-handed chords here and uh, an enticing uh, break before he begins soloing. I love how this classic style of percussive playing with rolling figures and uh, uh, trills thrown in is uh, picked up uh, in his uh, playing. And Alterman keeps it building. He never runs out of ideas, and there's some really great rolling figures uh, to the end, you know. This is sort of uh, that old style of jazz piano, and he makes it fresh uh, again here. Uh, track five, The First Night Home. Uh, this is uh, kind of starts with a piano intro that leads into a slow ballad. And here you get some nice soft brushwork by uh, Patton on drums for added texture. And Alterman uses a lot of sweet sounds high on the keyboard. And he can still swing really well when he's slow and loose. Uh, He's got these kind of spring-loaded hands uh, that are packed with these kind of rhythmic Hmm. dynamite, uh, no matter what he's playing. Uh, Track six is Pure Imagination. And this gets a funky opening figure that leads into a medium even beat on this tune. Some really nice uh, funky syncopated bass lines also underneath. Uh, And when the funky figure keeps returning in the tune, it makes a nice contrast to the other sections. And here, Alterman Solo has some really amazing fast lines and uh, sextuplet figures uh, that he works in there. So he he can uh, play fast when he uh, sees uh, the opportunity for it, and his rhythm is still as precise as ever. Track seven, The Last Time I Saw You. Uh, This is a lovely intro, and it gains motion as the bass and drums join in with Alterman's solo piano. And here he shows that he knows how to treat a melody, but still give it enough space while keeping things interesting. And Schroeder's bass gives a nice pulsing bottom to the swing that builds through the song. Uh, Eight, Funny Girl a tune you may know. Uh, This one Mm. is a strolling medium swing. And here, listen to Alterman's left hand on this tune, how it really drives the song along. Uh, That, in contrast to his uh, high register tinkling in the right hand, and uh, this is kind of uh, the recipe that he mixes up here, and it really shows how much fun he's having. Uh, Number nine is the title track, The Upside of Down. This one is a kind of funky, even beat groove, like a la Ramsey Lewis uh, from mm. the uh, 60s or so. And it gets a little gospely. And Alterman uses a lot of super fast syncopated figures as he builds up his solo on this one. Uh, so another earlier style of piano that uh, he enjoys and uh, you'll enjoy too. Uh, 10, the uh, Henry Mancini tune, Days of Wine and Roses. Uh, Oscar Peterson also recorded this a few times on his albums Uh, Alterman likes the chiming upper register on this one and he plays a lot of repeated figures and then he mixes it up through his solo Uh, this gets uh, usually this is played as kind of a a ballad or a little fast ballad but this is more groovy uh, it's really upbeat I said said it's upbeat yeah Yeah. this one gets a little more 
uh, energy than you're used to hearing it. He, he um, really does love those days of wine and roses. Yeah. So he's not nostalgic. Uh, he's enthusiastic. Enthusiastic. Uh, 11 right. is uh, Don't Forget to Love Yourself. This is a solo piano version of a ballad, of this ballad. And uh, Alterman gets some space to explore kind of different rhythms and a little more legato playing. And he has some really beautiful runs uh, that lead up to a nice climax. And that goes to the final tune called Gus Gus. Uh, as a choppy piano opening, it gets into a driving swing over Schroeder's kind of chugging, walking bass. Alterman uses a little bit more dissonance than usual in this tent to build tension, and he has some uh, playful lines as well. Uh, Schroeder gets uh, one more of a rare bass solo on this album, and he almost seems surprised yeah. that he does. There's, there's a drum <laughs> solo as up. well. Yeah. yeah, and there's some tasty drum uh -huh. fills and some short uh, solo phrases uh, from Patton while Alterman outlines the chords. So uh, <laughs> it's a really great uh, sounding live recording too. Uh, I don't think it could have been done any better in the studio and it wouldn't have the energy that this album has. It captures the spirit of all that was kind of swinging in piano up you know, into the 50s and 60s too, probably. And it will definitely put you in a good mood. I think even non-jazz fans will enjoy this. And uh, if you put this on, I, you know, your mom or the missus might even like bring you a sandwich. <laughs> I mean, I put this on one night and my wife brought the Knob Creek what? out without my asking. Did she so, really? Indeed, yeah. Um, I and wrote she's usually bottom, great that way anyway, but, um, wow. you know, I wrote I think, at the bottom of my notes for this. Is it okay to be as happy as Ultimate makes us feel I, in I 2021? Is yeah. this okay? Is this allowed? Cause this is a yeah. really, uh, yeah, this is a really good feeling I record. Mean, put this on for family therapy and everyone's going to have a good time. They'll take their masks off and uh, just make sandwiches in Knob Creek and everyone yeah, will have fun. This is the way life should be. You <laughs> yeah. should feel like this all the time. Yeah. I, I want to say one thing about this record. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't even a minute into this and I was already looking for uh, a CD of it to order. I, yeah. I really liked this a lot right from the beginning. Now, the, the album is only available from his on, in physical format from his uh, Bandcamp site. It's not on Amazon or anything like that. And that's fine. Uh, it was $12 and to Ship it to Japan was fourteen dollars. Oh, oh, that kills Christ. me so much. Wow. This oh, is the man. problem with Bandcamp. I mean, I really yeah. do appreciate that the artists want you to kind of like you know support them, and they get all the money for it. And I, but you just get killed on these shipping rates. It's oh, wow. really horrible. Yeah. And then they they give you the thing um twelve dollars or you know you get to fill in the amount you want to pay and I would gladly give the artist a few more dollars but not when they're charging me fourteen dollars yeah. to wow. ship it here you know oof it's uh, tough. It, it, was, it was painful I did get it though because I liked it a lot so anyway twenty six dollars CD Ugh, killing yeah. me oof. you're killing me <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anyway, it's not yeah. his fault anyway. But, not his uh, fault. Well, no. well, he he did could well. Be. I don't know. Maybe uh, he's not signed to a major label. I don't know. But um, yeah, it could be. Yeah. Um, I kind of wonder, do wonder about his uh, rhythm section though. They all like, oh, oh, please, can we just have a solo here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a solo. Um, <laughs> I went to school for a lot of years. I want to play. I want to express myself. You know. He's just got so many ideas. Yeah. Um, right. He he yeah. does. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that one's going to put you in a good mood. And now we're going to shift gears uh, with these next two albums and go into some uh, different realms of piano. But I think they're really uh, enjoyable. Maybe take a little bit more uh, attention and exploration. And uh, the first one 
is uh, by the Olga Konkova Trio. Oh, okay, good there. Yeah, I'm going to go to this one first. Um, and this is an album called uh, Open Secret. This is mm-hmm. on Lawson Records. First time okay. I've heard of this label, but there's a lot of new labels out there or things I haven't heard of. And this is going to feature the, uh, I think she's uh, uh, she's listed as Norwegian uh, Russian. She, uh, yeah, she's but, um, uh, Russian. She was born in Russia, Russia and yeah. she's married to the bass player. Well, I'll get into that in a minute um, because that gives me a really another interesting thing I was just yeah, thinking so about he's to Norwegian I think so I yeah think. it could be yeah because so she, now was, she uh, lives in Norway okay. she was educated as a classical pianist in in Moscow and uh, later uh, she studied uh, jazz at Berkeley College of Music in Boston and that's where she met her uh, husband uh, but uh, here on this album uh, Konkova is on piano and also an interesting uh, incorporation of Fender Rhodes piano which we'll talk about yeah. Uh, on bass, uh, Per Matheson, uh, her husband, mm-hmm. uh, who she met uh, while she was studying at Berkeley. And then uh, on drums, uh, Gary Husband, uh, a name you may be familiar with. Uh, he's recorded, I think, a lot in the UK. And um, I, I find it ironic that her husband's in the band, but the guy that's yeah, named Well, that's what I wanted to him, say. You know? so, um, <laughs> I, I stole your joke. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just kind well, of just yeah, came up. Per Matheson is her husband, but Gary Husband is not her husband. So when we talk it's about like, it, it's kind of like ZZ Top. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. So ZZ Top was Billy Gibbons, Dusty Hill, uh, the, who Dusty Hill passed away just recently. And yeah. so uh, among their other things they were noted for, their you know, uh, blues shuffle rhythms uh, in uh, rock music and a lot of cool tunes. Uh, the drummer was uh, Frank Beard, who hadn't no beard. Yeah, he was uh, the only least, guy in the yeah, band without a beard. didn't have a beard, yeah. Um, yeah. So it started to make me think this could be like a, a music trio paradox kind of thing going on, right. where the husband is the one, well... Who, who doesn't have not, the name husband. Not na- married and the, the bearded, the unbearded. Anyway... Um, anyway, <laughs> well, we're not before we to, go down that. Uh, when we speak that, about husband, we'll be talking about Gary husband <laughs> and not Matheson. Although he, at least now he's her husband or something like that. But uh, anyway, yeah. um, so this album uh, is something very different in mood uh, that uh, contrasts uh, with what we heard with Alterman, uh, but gives us something uh, new to explore here. Uh, it starts out with a tune called "Hymn for My Brother." And this one has a really gentle melody, almost like a pop-like sensibility to uh, the way that it moves. Uh, Konkova introduces it with a lot of space over her husband's nice brushwork on the drums. Uh, and Matheson is very much in sync with her adding bass pulses at just the right spots uh, that push the melody forward. And then Konkova plays some sparse improvisation in spots, but overall... Uh, this tune shows that uh, this group's playing is about space and texture, yeah. uh, which is setting the theme for what you're going to hear on this whole recording, uh, and right down to the fading kind of ascending notes at the end. I think uh, Konkova expresses her ideas when there's a lot of uh, room and uh, not too much other sound going on, and... Uh, she works well with texture and sort of uh, 
ideas that you know need breathing room uh, to work through them. And uh, the way she locks in, naturally with uh, her partner, uh, Matheson on bass, uh, it seems really sort of uh, symbiotic. And uh, a husband on drums uh, seems to fit into that uh, without overplaying and just adding the right amount of extra to that. Um, two on the track list is Love to Be Four. Here, uh, husband whacks us in on the drums uh, just before the heavy low piano chords begin. And here, Konkova builds up with lots of kind of open chiming chords. Uh, and then the drums generate a lot of energy all over the kit. Uh, the drums then sort of burn out, but the chords continue more quickly. Uh, with light textures of bass and cymbals. And this one's a kind of a different mood uh, overall that's created on uh, this uh, piece. Uh, track three is called All Sorts of Weird and Wonderful. And here, um, this is kind of an interesting point on this album. Konkova introduces an open-sounding theme on piano, and then there's a line of roads that's interspersed so you get kind right. of piano roads and then back to piano. Um, and she's playing very rubato, you know, uh, loosely rhythm uh, kind of playing until the cymbals come in and begin to set a slow pace. Then kind of the magically the roads return and then almost sounding like a vibraphone in the sustaining uh, kind of quality to it. Uh, Matheson takes some melodic lines with clear articulation and bass sliding uh, with a really nice tone on his bass. Yeah, and still, he's a beautiful sound. There's a lot of space in this composition. Uh, Konkova returns with a piano, uh, acoustic piano and solos with some nicely melodic lines. And again, there's a Rhodes answer just at one point. So it's interesting uh, how she heard both of the you know, keyboard instruments. There's not a lot of roads in here, but she definitely wanted to include it, uh, you know, in the sound of how she saw that, which is not something we usually hear. You know, we, we do hear roads uh, being used more these days, um, but, you know, some artists will just choose to use it for an al a whole album or a tune, but not in concert with the piano and certainly to a relegated role like this so it becomes like just another kind of tonal part of the i gotta, I gotta say yeah. after so many years it's lost its uh lionel richie association i think you know i kind of you know it's, you just heard it in every song <laughs> Hello. At one point. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um number four is uh rest in motion uh, this is a riff of alternating phrases uh, shared by piano and bass over some nicely textured drumming. And then uh, Konkova reaches a nice solo of lines that rise and fall uh, that she weaves together. Uh, Matheson gets a spot here to include some more melodic lines. And then the riff uh, returns as an idea, but with different notes. Uh, another kind of interesting uh, composition. Five, uh, Darwin's Point. This is a hypnotic syncopated riff uh, that changes modes, uh, so it kind of keeps you expecting something. And that sets up some nice harmonic possibilities in the ascending hook that uh, Konkova starts exploring while she keeps things really rhythmic. Uh, she gets more adventurous with some fetch faster figures here 
did in the other tracks and uh, Matheson has a short solo and then husband uh, adds some cool snare sounds uh, building into a drum flurry over the repeated chords uh, track six is called no rules and this has an interesting piano opening with a lot of things going on uh, there's a nice modulation when the drums and bass kick in to start to swing this tune and uh, Konkova mixes in blue, a few bluesy ideas and then more abstract phrases. There's like a pregnant pause midway through that leads to a blazing tempo that's set up uh, by the bass and drums. And then uh, Konkova joins back in and things spin out while the beat dissolves into a kind of final piano crash. Uh, this one's a really interesting tune. <laughs> it kept me guessing at what was going to uh, go on uh, at each stage of it. Uh, seven. Uh, this is kind of a scary tune, The Man with the Van. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. Uh, but uh, this one has a repeating sort of stayed Rhodes riff that transfixes you at the start. And then it gets layered with more piano on top of that. The bass lays the groove with some cracking drumming. And then uh, Konkova has a piano and Rhodes dialogue with herself. Uh -huh. yeah in this one uh, and things change textures and then wind down before the riff returns you know, the uh, word I used for this uh, particular tune is neurotic kind neurotic. of reminded me of yeah, uh, right. yeah. Eight, we've got a uh, French title uh, how do you say this uh, Les Hommes de Les Sable, Sable which Sable. means like the, the man sand of the man. sands the, the sand man, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here uh, Konkova is on roads over a pulsing beat on the drums. Uh, the tune is based on a three-note moving pattern and the kind of implied harmonies that those tones suggest. Uh, Matheson gets some interesting bass sounds in the background on this one. Uh, nine is called Open Secret and you get some low left-hand tones with right-hand chords that start a nice rubato introduction and some interesting rubbing bass tones under that. Uh, there's a break and a slow tempo is set by husband's uh, brushwork. The piano plays some melodic ideas and passes it off to the bass for a while. Uh, and the tune has a very uh, breath-like nature. Uh, I thought this was a really lovely, uh, gentle kind of playing here. Uh, it shows a lot of restraint and uh, following kind of... Uh, relaxation almost meditative breath uh quality to it i, uh, I remember the bass solo in this one i mm. thought it was really nice yeah uh 10 uh grande capitano which seems uh, italian huh it sounds like <laughs> it yeah. yeah uh it's got a syncopated piano chord opening that gives way to a steady uh drum beat and a bass line and then uh Konkova adds some roads here she solos sparsely on piano and adds uh, Rhodes underneath and then sort of switches the piano and Rhodes parts. Uh, Matheson finds a digging bass groove and that's accented on the drums uh, with cymbals. And then the piano gets energized with some runs and trills, some high choppy chords before things quiet down again. And uh, Matheson takes over the kind of um, melodic side with a bass solo and it incorporates some real speedy 16th note runs in here and there's also a space for some fine drum work uh, between a low note riff figure in the piano and bass. Uh, number 11 is Discovering the Truth 
And this is a slow and halting piano intro for about two minutes. And then finally, uh, cymbals and bass join in. Uh, it's a very slow tempo. And here, uh, Kronkova weaves kind of textured ideas with rhythmic freedom over the top. The bass and drums appear, disappear again, and they only return faintly as the piano uh, does some more weaving to bring the tune to an end. And uh, the last tune, uh, number 12, Triste Realidad. And this is like a slightly sad, fitting melody for the title. It hints at a Latin rhythm that doesn't quite develop because it's uh, very free uh, in its uh, pacing. But after a pause at a minute or so, a more even rhythm emerges uh, that's kind of accentuated by repeated piano notes and uh, Matheson has some melodic bass spots. The rhythm returns to that of the previous section as they bring it uh, to an end. So um, <clears throat> I enjoyed this album a lot. I liked listening to it. It's fresh sounding music and it sort of breathes as they're playing it. It requires all this space that allows you to hear all of the parts to it. And I thought it takes a lot of, um, how can I say, uh, integration and uh, understanding between the players to uh, play something uh, with this much openness to it uh, without overplaying and uh, valuing the textures of each instrument. And I also was really uh, intrigued and sort of mystified by Konkova's uh, use of the roads uh, in here in the way that she uses it it's almost as an accessory uh, to the piano but she definitely uh, has a reason uh, for wanting to hear it on those certain lines so um, she's not a huge technical player but um, she's very much a uh, sort of a, a tonal creator and right. uh, she and, sort of places the tones in yeah, spaces she that places she places the tones yeah. and the compositions yeah. are interesting and um it's a, it's a music with a peaceful quality that draws you into it uh, and you sort of join this space yourself because there's so much room to swim around in it so i was intrigued and uh, i thought it was uh yeah unique and well worth a listen yeah, I want to remark on how beautifully recorded this album was. I I really like the whole sound of it, especially the uh, the sound of the bass is really rich. He gets almost this liquidy sound yeah. uh, that I really enjoyed. It might just be his sound. Also, when she, he, the bass plays with the uh, the piano, they, they really are like one person. I guess uh, it's not surprising that they're husband and wife because they really do seem to sort of right. mind melt. Uh, on what they do. I, I really enjoyed the uh, sound quality of this album. Now, when I listened to this, I actually, I'm going to warn listeners against this. I made the mistake of listening to this right after the Joe Alterman album. <laughs> it's kind of a come down from that. So I would isolate this and listen to it on your own. I did get into it after a while, though, my, as my mood eventually changed. But uh, I, I enjoyed this. Yeah, it was uh, spacious. It was sort of ruminative. It kind of gave you a lot of it gave a lot of space for contemplation, I thought. I liked it a lot. This is in the vein of, uh, as we heard last week uh, in the Guitar Monks, the Andrew Surreal album. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which was all about, you know, spacious sort of yeah. room to create a kind of a, a, a picture. That was a lot more abstract than this is. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. more abstract, but I think it's the same kind of uh, 
approach mm-hmm. rather than rhythm driven. Uh, especially that was surprising because as a drummer, as a leader, uh, you, you need to get into that yeah, you wouldn't space. Think you'd go there. Yeah. But um, yeah, similar kind of approach uh, here. Uh, there's a lot of rhythmic things going on, but overall, it's sort of a tonal palette and a bigger composition of uh, things with a lot of space to uh, work out their beauty. All right, in the third album, and I've saved this for last because this one uh, I think is some uh, pianist who I think is going to have a lot of promise for the future. And this is the Billy Test Trio, uh, Coming Down Roses on the Aveni Test Music label. Hmm. And this is uh, young Pennsylvania native uh, Billy Test who has uh, held the piano chair with the Grammy Award-winning WDR Big Band uh, out of Germany since 2018. And uh, that's uh, working with uh, Bob Mincer uh, in this band. And uh, so he's appeared on a lot of the uh, WDR band recordings and television broadcasts uh, over Europe. And uh, here he's uh, exclusively on piano, but uh, you can see on YouTube... uh, some recordings where he also plays a very mean uh, Hammond organ. Uh, So maybe in the future we'll see him uh, do some uh, Hammond work. But this is his first recording uh, debut as a leader. uh, I want to point out the the title, by the way. Like It's a play on everything is coming up roses. He called it coming down roses. Yeah, coming down roses. Which I thought was kind of odd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder what he means by that. Anyway... uh, Test is an alumni of uh, William Patterson University, and he studied under uh, Mogrew Miller there. And um, you can see uh, he's uh, been a finalist in some uh, piano uh, competitions uh, over the years, and some of those recordings are available on uh, YouTube, uh, and you'll see his energy. Anyway, here he is as... uh, his debut as a leader, as I mentioned, uh, with Evan Gregor on bass and Ian Froman on drums. And uh, this album uh, features a lot of his original compositions, too, as well as uh, One Standard and uh, a sort of a reworked number and then a number their cover tune that we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but the album starts out with uh, uh, a lesser uh, played standard by Cole Porter, All of You. Uh, And uh, this one gets reimagined harmonically uh, in a lot of ways uh, to get some more freedom out of it. It starts out with a nice groove uh, with the piano left hand and bass, uh, getting it into a medium swing. Uh, Then Tess takes some freedom with the harmonies and the rhythm uh, also as he gets started soloing. He works up to some real rhythmic chiming chords and real blazing runs. Uh, then he works in a cycle of ascending figures that break the rhythm. But uh, when he sort of comes back to the tempo of the song, you'll notice that the bass and drums are in perfect sync with him here. So this trio plays really well together. Um, they're uh, in sync with each other. Uh, things quiet down uh, for a Gregor bass solo. Uh, there's, there's a lot more bass hmm. solos on this one than there are on the yeah. old, old <laughs> album. Um, after they return to the melody, Test works in some really huge, cool chord clusters 
<laughs> these giant uh, courts that yeah. build tension to the end. Uh, so he, he's a, he's a very generous uh, leader. Yes, yeah, <laughs> he, test, yeah. He, everyone gets a spot to shine. Uh, but right. you get an idea of his uh, approach uh, working uh, a sort of well-known tune, but uh, he uh, really uh, gets it uh, expanded here. Number two is his first original, Spinning. Uh, this one starts with a gentle unison bass and piano melody, uh, and it adds some more piano chords uh, over that as uh, the sort of waltzing melody uh, goes on and it also breaks up the waltz with uh, kind of triplet figures that keep uh, the rhythm really interesting. Uh, here you get a sense of Test's sense of touch. Uh, he has a really good uh, articulation uh, that he can vary uh, to the mood. Uh, Gregor gets another bass solo here and his tone is rich in the upper register and uh, Test's solo also keeps the lighter touch for the mood but it includes a lot of uh, chiming pretty chords, uh, so a little softer uh, aspect of his personality here. Uh, three, another original, Fate. Uh, this is very melodic at a relaxed tempo. Uh, Tess has a really pretty solo here with some uh, intervals uh, in his playing and some kind of harp-like runs that uh, he draws up the keyboard and uh, chords that all have a very sustaining quality. Uh, he builds it up and takes it out in a very composed way. So it's a nicely structured solo. Uh, they return to the melody and after some more piano ideas, uh, the bass and drums uh, drop out and for Test to create a more free and pretty statement before the ending. Uh, four is called Hardly. Uh, actually in the album notes, it's it's described as a contrafact on softly as a morning sunrise, but you'll hardly recognize it uh, because it's uh, really uh, distilled down to uh, the uh, real elements of that. Uh, Froman comes in on a doubled up groove uh, that uh, here uh, working on the drums. Uh, Test starts uh, getting busy and then it shifts into a driving swing uh, with the bass and drums. Here Tess really romps through the modulating harmonies with speedy runs, complex percussive figures, and heavy chords. He gets some cross rhythms going in his hands. Uh, it's a really intense solo. Uh, Froman has a busy drum solo, keeps the energy high. Uh, when Tess returns, he doesn't let the energy down at all, um, and he has some more uh, fast runs and harmonic ideas until they decide to kind of fade the tune out mysteriously. So a uh, cool high energy tune. Five is called Empty Spaces. Uh, this is just a solo piano piece, uh, really pretty chords. And this one uh, has a nice melody that shows off Test's uh, delicate sense of touch. There's a nice variety in dynamics too. Uh, and Tess builds to the climaxes in the tune uh, in the different sections, and he re releases them gently. Uh, so this shows off uh, his sort of uh, softer side uh, and the subtleties in his playing. Uh, six is the title track, Coming Down Roses. Uh, here the bass sets an engaging bounce for the tune. Uh, Tess works with lines of clear notes in the right hand, uh, before adding in more chords and then rhythmic figures as he becomes more intense. Uh, this is also a really nicely built solo here. Uh, Gregor gets another melodic bass solo and uh, Test uh, switches to uh, 
accompaniment mode, and he has a nice, precise, uh, but quiet chord backing. Uh, Froman gets a chance for some drum intensity over the repeated figures in the final section, and then it uh, goes quiet uh, to the end. Seven, uh, this is a tune called The Prince uh, by a lesser-known pianist, John Coates Jr., who was uh, an early influence on Keith Jarrett's playing and also uh, someone who uh, tested the fan of. Uh, this one starts with an extended uh, solo bass intro that has uh, these slides, and then it finally slides into this ostinato uh, pattern uh, that becomes like a root for the tune, and the cymbals join in, uh, and Test has some light chiming over that. Uh, his ideas and intensity expand with rhythmic figures as the tune swells, and then uh, things get quiet uh, towards the end, but they keep the atmosphere uh, set in the earlier part of the tune. Uh, this eight, this yeah. this particular piece, by the way, the Prince, it had a sense, a classical sense of arriving at the tonic chord, as opposed yeah. to ending on the root chord. You right. Know? I had the sense that there was a that of pro, you know a progression being uh, yeah. played out, sort of. Yeah, and I, I think the bass sort of feeds into that with that kind of. It's like yeah. an ostinato thing. It's almost like a one note, but it has that that goes through it. And then it varies, but it always comes back to that. So it sort of leads you back to that uh, kind of thing. Yeah, and I know. I wrote that Empty Spaces had that quality too. So there, there's a there's almost mm. like a classical sense to these those two. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. yeah. I guess uh, the Empty Spaces is something he wrote for the anniversary of his father's death or something uh, too. So it has some special meaning uh, to him. I thought, yeah, that one, the climaxes he builds up in that are particularly moving, uh, right. I thought. Um, eight, uh, <laughs> this is the, the best title <laughs> of the evening, <laughs> Mother's Day yeah. with Freud. <laughs> oh, boy. So, uh, I don't know what that quite means, but uh, hope you don't have a mom... Uh, that's in uh, therapy or something, but uh, mm. this one starts with uh, a cool bass and drum syncopation uh, that make a setting uh, for some disconnected piano lines <laughs> that keep things <laughs> moving ahead. Uh, it sort of uh, creates a, a little bit of un, uh, uneasiness, but the rhythm develops into a new groove and uh, it opens up for a place for a test to really jam out freely. And he goes all out on this one. Uh, really awesome piano solo. Gregor takes a rhythmic bass solo again that's filled with some jumping intervals. And uh, Froman also gets a section to bust out some nice rhythms. And then Tess takes it out with some intervals that need therapy on their own. <laughs> so oh, they're just having some fun with this title. Uh, yeah, uh, kind of a, a fun uh, exploration here. Nine, uh, Belonging. Uh, this is a final tune. It's a solo piano introduction uh, that uh, brings us a kind of pretty and contemplative theme that has some nice pauses in it. Uh, the bass and drums join in at a very slow tempo, and Test shows uh, his gentle touch here, and uh, Froman matches with soft uh, brushwork on the drums uh, in the snare and cymbals. Uh, the dynamics swell in the tune as it goes on, but Test keeps it a kind of lush sounding and uh, Gregor gets another bass spot here and he keeps it uh, warm to match the mood. So uh, I really enjoyed this album. I think Tess shows huge promise uh, 
He's a young guy with a lot of talent. Uh, it's a fine debut. Uh, he has gobs of technique, uh, but also a nice touch that he can show on the softer uh, moods. And he, he can really build up a solo uh, when he wants to uh, uh, get that climax. His compositions show a nice uh, variety of material. And he's got a trio here that works well with him. They lock into each other. And he's also, as Mike said, a generous leader. He gives uh, Gregor and Froman mm. uh, their own spots to shine here. So it's definitely a young player I'm going to be looking forward to uh, hearing more of uh, with whatever he does next. Yeah, another thing he does is he plays to serve the song, not to draw attention to himself. Right. Or to wow the audience. And you can kind of see that sort of generosity plays out in his giving the... Uh, the other two um, players, a lot of solos. Yeah. Um, and he winds up uh, wowing the audience anyway, yeah. <laughs> despite not doing that. Yeah. So, yeah, very appealing I have here. He's very unassuming as a pianist, and yet he draws your attention. It's, it's, it's sort of mysterious. I really liked that quality of his. Yeah. There's a little bit of a classical sort of uh, approach in some of these tunes, too, that kind of struck mm -hmm. me, that you know, yeah. arriving a sense of arriving that you get in classical music a lot, but not necessarily in jazz or like a more popular form. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I really, I like the way he um, builds his solos and um, he, and for a young player, um, you know, you, you can uh, look through the history of jazz and as you see players coming up, uh, a lot of players who had like really good technique and also sort of, uh, in emotional sense, um, when they were young, they would sort of go all out on every tune and every solo, and they would sort of wear you out. But um, he has a, you know, kind of a mature restraint, uh, and it's just like those two two tunes that I mentioned, where he really does go all out, and then um, so he 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 holds enough back for when he realizes, you know, okay, you know this this needs more and it's sort of you know he has that kind of uh, uh you know normally this is sort of like a audiophile kind of analysis uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we say you know headroom he's got that he keeps that extra like three decibels there uh and when he he only uses it when he needs it and so when he builds up that solo and he feels still feels like he's got more uh he goes there without distorting any of his ideas or getting gratuitous about it but um he can still sort of uh add some more on there with the turbo boost kind of thing and i like that uh kind of quality about his play um and uh so it, it gets a really great intensity and then he doesn't sort of just you know blow his musical load and drop there he also sort of brings his solos back down uh into the next segment uh, so i found that sort of maturity of the arc of a solos uh really interesting in his playing uh he's obviously listened to uh you know the great players and and uh you know followed their sort of uh mature arc of soloing so uh, I liked that combined with the energy, and I thought, you know, for a debut album, this one has a lot of promise to it. Yeah, looking forward to seeing what else he's going to do. The beginning of a great career, perhaps. Yeah. Well, let's and hope, so, anyway. He sounds great. So here you've got uh, three uh, trios. Uh, I think all of them are really intriguing in their own right. Uh, you've got the, uh, how can I say, the, uh, the, complete likability and uh, grooviness of Joe Alterman. You're going to like yeah. this album. Uh, yeah. 
everyone in your family is going to like it too. You've got the uh, Th- deep- think about like last week we talked about Pat Metheny's uh, live record. Yeah. That was just this big free flight of joy. This is kind of a good companion to that, even though it's not the same kind of music. You know, this yeah. is really more of a traditional swing, but it's still that uplifting sort it's of vibe uplifting. to it. It's just fantastic. Uh-huh. All right. Got You'd the, actually, if you if you want to get back at all the uh, all the misery that we've had in 2020 and 2021, you can just easily do that by listening to that. Album. Yeah, just put on Joe Alterman. <laughs> Defy the times. Yeah, <laughs> you'll you'll be happy. And you've all got right. this introspective uh, Olga Konkova trio, which has. Uh, this is also, I mean, it's very complex uh, in the ideas, but the music has so much space in it. Uh, while you're listening to it, you actually get time to digest. Uh, hmm. what you've heard and uh, the it's a beautiful recording lots of space in it and, uh, and she gives you time to uh, sort of follow the picture that she's painting as she goes along so this one uh, deserves a listen and uh, it's really nice too and then uh, right here more in the mainstream modern uh, sort of vein uh, Billy Test and you'll be uh I think impressed by not only his technique, but uh, his creativity, uh, the energy he brings to it, and then the nice balance uh, in his uh, well-integrated trio with some uh, mix of nice uh, material, both original and uh, sort of reinvented uh, uh, standards and uh, other things here. So, uh, yeah, there's enough piano here to... uh, give you a keyboard fix in the jazz world. Yeah, and there's world. enough podcast here to uh, keep people listening for two weeks because I think we this might be our longest podcast it could be. ever. Yeah, it Boy, might be. we just kept talking. But it's, yeah. Well, how can we not? It's, how can it's, you not? When you have such good so music. It's such interesting music. You just want to keep talking about it. Maybe we'll have a week where we pick a bunch of duds that we had hoped would be good and then yeah, <laughs> they yeah. turn out this, not Yeah, good. this was okay. Next. Yeah. <laughs> Next, <laughs> yeah. Be done in 10 minutes. We'll <laughs> see. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I think everything here. I, I just I think this podcast might have the best total uh, grouping of uh, things to listen to. Maybe yeah, we've maybe had it that's so possible. You One of know. them anyway. Yeah, but uh, anyway, uh, listen to these recordings. I'm uh, going to listen to all of them again because everything. Yeah, we highly recommend all of them. Really, really good. Yeah. And so that's a wrap for episode 32 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And in this case, I think even your friends and family who are less mature will develop from listening to this music so you can introduce it uh, to them as well. So as always, uh, please do like, subscribe, leave a comment on whatever platform or service you listen to us on. And if you'd like to contact us directly, please uh, reach us at email at Adult Music Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. And that's it for this week. And we'll be back again next week with six new albums. And uh, both Mike and I have a lot of stuff. We do. Keep listening, everybody. It's a good time to be a music fan. Check out the playlists, and we'll see you again next week. Mm